Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? Oh, I'm great. I'm spending great. the night with my best gal. God damn it. I mean, how could I uh how could I be doing any better? Listen, um, first of all, same. Second of all, um, it's uh Look, we've had it. I've had a day. I've had a day. Mm-hmm. Tr- full mm-hmm. disclosure. Full disclosure. I have been up. You don't. You don't even know this. Christy doesn't even know this. I have been up since five thirty this morning. Ouch. 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 Uh, and it was one of those days where uh, I. It was a fun day, but it was just. It was. It was long, grueling, fun, gru- fun, grueling, grueling fun. Um, but I, I did a photo shoot today, which again, what a joy. Um, but it was like, and then I had to do an audition. I had to do a self tape. Mm -hmm. So it was just one of those things where it was like, my eyes shot awake and then we just started to move. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then it was like 4 PM and I was like, haven't eaten today, which again, this is the second time I'm bringing up on this show, which not in my life has that happened ever (laughs) that I've ever forgotten to eat. Sure. Uh, Don't worry. I made up for it, dear listeners. We got some Shake Shack. But I guess um, the big thing is, is that, uh, truthfully, 
uh, a friend of the podcast, Leslie Seiler, she was very supportive of me today. She was, I was saying, you're my, she was my emotional support person. She just was with me throughout my day because I was just thing to thing to thing. It was very, very busy. Helped me all along the way. And I guess my question to you is, would you know that I've had some wine? (laughs) I wouldn't. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Well, good for you. Well, listen, here's, you'll love this. I was like, also, like, why, Lauren, why are you trying to, like, get one over on Christy? Like, ooh, I had a couple glasses. Can she tell? How well can I hide this alcoholism? It's not a alcoholism. It's alcohol enthusiasm. But you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> what a joke. Long story short, no, it was just like we got to the end of this, and, and she, again, was helping me along the way, and she helped me put myself on tape for this audition, which is a whole other thing. And then it was like the very end of it. We had like 20 minutes before this record. And I was like, do we need? <laughs> so literally we slammed a wine. She called an Uber. She headed on her way. Um, uh, but yeah, I came. I'm a li- li- Listen, calling back a couple episodes ago, I'm a little loose. I'm a little loose. <laughs> Good for you. You've earned it. You've Thank earned you. it. This now, I this makes sense because usually I'm an hour further than you uh so usually if i text you in the morning i don't get a response right away for at least like an hour uh today just right on it so (laughs) and i was like oh she's up early didn't think anything of it i was like she's busy she's always doing things so it didn't dawn on me but my god you know what it is for me is I'm a single mom who works too hard, who loves her kids and never stops. Um, I am of these animals. Yeah. But honest to God, though, what I've noticed is back in back in the day, in the day. Uh, but even if I if I had a partner at the time, if I had to be somewhere at a certain time, yeah, or, or leave, rather leave the house at a certain time, I was like, if I get up an hour in advance, I'm cool. That gives me, I can get up, I can shower, and get myself together and go. But when you're caring for three little ones who all have different needs, some have medications, some need to be hand-fed, some have all these things, I'm like, I have to be fully, fully up but fully awake minimum two hours before I need to be anywhere because oh. I have to, I have to handle them first, which I'm happy to do. It's a blessing in my life. It's a joy in my life. But it's no joke is the point. It's no joke yeah. when when you've already got an early day. It 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 it, yeah. it, uh, it adds on. It it sends you back, you know. So yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned that though, because I do remember you mess you messaged me very early my time. I think it was like maybe even just before six. I don't know my time. Uh, and I remember writing you back, and I was like, I wonder if she's wondering, like, huh, that's a very early text message from Ash. But um, she was. Yeah, that's funny. I and yeah. to be fair, I never call you Ash, but. <laughs> But you yes. don't. You don't. <laughs> but yes, I was thinking, huh, that's early for her. Let it go. But I what was, I like no. about us. Yeah. I mean, everything. First of all. Yeah. It, list, list, too long. Too We're long slam for this dunk. Don't even know what that means, but we are. <laughs> of course. I mean, if I was going to list everything we like about us, again, that would be a six hour long podcast episode, but uh, minimum. But one of the things I like about us. Is we have a very um, specific text style, but there's different kinds of texts. Mm-hmm. So, again, there's the late at night you know the other person's not going to see until the next morning. And that's sure. Time. You're not sure. looking for a response yet. There's the early morning 
you know the other person's not going to respond for a while and you don't expect it anyway. There's the strict business. Yeah. There's the, uh, have you seen this? <laughs> Usually pop culture related. <laughs> Usually celebrity related. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, again, there's so many different ones. But my favorite of our texts are the out of contexts. <laughs> and the out of contexts are ones that there is no preamble, no, have you seen this? There's nothing. It'll just be a statement <laughs> that has had nothing preceding it. It's just like this. Those are my favorite. And you sent me one recently that, like, I howled. <laughs> I it made can't me wait. laugh so hard. Do you know the one I'm talking about? I do not. We, <laughs> well, we send many. I get hundreds. <laughs> hundreds. Remember back in the day when it would tell you your texts? Like it would be like you've sent this many or whatever to whatever person. Yeah. And it would be like so-and-so 15, so-and-so 25, so-and-so 1,024. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 No, Christy sent me one and I'm paraphrasing and I'd love for you to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but you sent me one again, and and we're usually kind of in constant contact. But sometimes yeah. there will be, obviously we we have to work, we have lives, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There'll be there'll be periods of silence. So I hadn't heard from her probably in like six hours, and then out of nowhere, it was like, I think Channing Tatum is underrated for his comedy. <laughs> Yeah, that was something along those uh, lines. It w yeah, it was something like uh, Channing Tatum. I feel like Channing Tatum doesn't get enough credit because that's what I had said to my husband during a movie we were watching. I was like, Channing Tatum doesn't get enough credit. To which my husband went, "Really? You think that?" And I went, "For his beauty, <laughs> obviously the man is beautiful, of course." And everyone tells him that, and they yeah. they hire him because they're like, "He's beautiful." But what I don't think people acknowledge is how fucking funny that man is. He's so funny. He has amazing comedic timing. His delivery is beautiful. I mean, I could go back to 21 Jump Street. Makes me howl every time. He is so funny. But we watched um, the new one he's in uh, with Sandy B. Uh, Lost City. Of course, of course. Uh, and what, what a delight. Um, it's a loose, loose remake of Romancing the Stone with, uh... Oh! Uh, what's his name? Why am I blanking on his name? Pussy Throat Cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Michael <laughs> Thank you... For, as a woman who's recently said ass to ass on this podcast, thank you for saying pussy throat cancer. God bless you. It was the only thing I could think of. But it got us there. It got us yep, there. Yep, the exactly. Michael Douglas. Is, there it is. This is why we're good at games. It is. <laughs> it is. And uh, just yeah. so you know, the next time we play, I guess pussy throat cancer is our team name. PTC. <laughs> we'll get it. Yep. Oh, God. Um, yes, Michael Douglas. There it is. And uh, Kathleen Turner, who I adore. Oh. And so I have loved that movie for years. And so I watched it in anticipation uh, of watching this new one. 
A similar idea. It wasn't exactly a remake, but uh, it was still very charming. And Channing Tatum was so fucking funny. And like his delivery and timing. Again, I don't think that Channing Tatum gets enough credit for being funny. He gets a lot of credit for being pretty, and he should. Of course. But he he should also get credit for being funny. I'd love to see you and him together in something. I would love that, too. And, you know, I said to you at the time, uh, again, I laughed only because it was an out-of-context text with no preamble. Yes. But my immediate response was, I wholeheartedly agree, which is the truth. And then I said, you know who would appreciate this? Channing Tatum. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Because I agree. I think he probably doesn't get that feedback that much. And uh, I agree with you. I think he is very funny. I think he's very naturally funny. And I think yes. that there are there are people who he's got that like natural charisma. And yes. I think that there are people who can learn to be better actors potentially. But then there's people who have what I've always called like the sparkle or star quality, whatever you sure. want to say. You can't teach it. You either are born with it or you're not. Sure. And uh, it's that's I'm not talking looks. I'm talking that intangible quality that makes you want to watch somebody <coughs> that makes you feel like that person is a star. And that's, again, Channing Tatum, even in his early stuff, like the stuff that wasn't necessarily comedic. He would always have a moment where you were like, oh, <laughs> like he was always mm-hmm. just impossibly charming. And I agree with you. Underrated for comedy. Channing Tatum. Listen. Yes. I, again. He's, he's got he's got the it factor. He does. There is something about him. And uh, shout out Channing Tatum. Yes. For your comedic ability, which we appreciate, and for your hotness. But the point is, because <laughs> I have to make sure that people know Blanche appreciates it, but Blanche appreciates the whole package because he is so funny and just there is something so whimsical and charming about him that i mean my god yes oh yeah i wholeheartedly agree i'm fully in and yes i i did send you that (laughs) mid-movie without bothering to tell you we were watching a movie or explaining it anyway just a simple thing uh but that's also one of the many many things that i love about you is i could say anything and you're just like on board yep you know just immediately like yep doesn't matter that this lady's crazy and talking about <laughs> comedic abilities, but well, again, it, usually, typically, if you've said it, I've already thought it is the thing. There it is. So we yeah. we do have a similar brain. We do. We yeah. do together. I think if you took your brain and my brain, we'd make yeah. one full brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, if yeah. you put our brains together, oof, we might pass a test <laughs> in a timely fashion and not get distracted. Yeah. Or doodle feels, on the paper. It, yeah, 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 right. That sounds impossible. Yeah. Uh, no, yes, we definitely would. I think that's, you know, that would be like take over the world territory. It oh, would be yeah. Either superhero or probably supervillain. Like, but like a good supervillain, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? It was just like someone who's too smart and amazing for their own good. Yeah. Oh, I've already envisioned our brains like together and you can see the very obvious stitching of the two brains being smashed together and us in some sort of 
uh, some sort of suit. And then our brain has a clear glass over top so you can see that it's the two brains and they're slightly different colors so you can tell that there's two different brains in there. I have a problem. No, I like it. <laughs> it makes me think of that uh, 80s, 90s cartoon show Cops. Do you remember that one? I, I do not. I Fighting crime in a future time. I loved that show. Uh, I always loved why. justice. Yeah, I did always, I always <laughs> love justice. But one of the bad guys... His head, there was like a like a plastic dome, and you could see his brain, which mm. feels like it's along these lines. Well, it feels full circle if that becomes us. Yeah, doesn't it? If that becomes us. What? If? You never know. You never know. If time travel is possible, I think eventually melding our brains into one could also become possible. Let's get real. Let's get real here. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Watch it work. Think about think about this. Yeah. What if in a future none of us know yet, <laughs> before you die, your brain can be melded with that of your best friend and put into the body of a brand new being in this movie? Starring Channing Tatum. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, in the far distant future, he will still look the way he does now. Yeah. Oh, my God. Somebody once told me. I'm just saying this trailer writes itself, let alone the movie. (laughs) The idea of him getting a little salt and pepper in that hair? Yes, please. Also, I have to say, I only thought it because... The obviously the somebody is very popular. It's a very it's a very TikTok real sort of uh bit. Yeah. Uh it hits different for me because uh my kids tend to watch end up finding videos and shit that they watch. I should know more about it, but I've got three. I'm exhausted. It's fine. Yeah. So uh my youngest, who I think was I it was probably Maybe, yeah, he was probably five at the time. Um, He kept starting to sing this song. And so I was like, oh, he heard it from one of these videos. So I put the, I went and found uh, the Smash Mouth song, put it on. And he sang it and he went, somebody wash. And I went, wait, wait, wait. What do you think those words are? And he's like, they're talking about body wash. I was like, oh, some body wash. I'm like, they are absolutely talking about body wash, and I let it go. And so every single time I hear that song, I hear his tiny little voice, somebody wash. He has no idea what the rest of the words are, but he thinks that somebody wash on me. We're gonna get real foamy. We gotta clean ourselves up today. I was feeling kind of dumb because I was really dumb and it fell apart. But the first bit was fun. You were doing Um, great. I, again, you and an ad agency born to be together. Yeah. Born to be alive. Um, Listen, before we get into it, what you drinking over there? I think I saw a Slurpee. You did. You did. Um, I'll get back to booze someday. I just, uh, I just haven't yet. Um. I, uh, I've got the water, of course, because yeah. I'm trying to consume more water. Uh, and then a lime, a lime Slurpee. 
Well, good news. Oh. Over here, you may have seen me slipping on, slipping, slipping on this diet coke, um, but that's only because I've got a very full glass of wine. <laughs> good for you. You've had yum, a day. Yum. Yeah, I had a, I had two glasses of Kim Crawford to be honest, and now this is a glass of Matua. So what I'm saying is, I've come into this two glasses deep, and I mm-hmm. feel fine. Yeah, but loose. And if we knew, learned anything from anything, mother. F- okay, if we learned anything from yeah. the Bonnie and Clyde episode of uh, episode of the show recently, it was uh, it was the first time I had drank on the show in some time, and it was fine. I mean, yeah. I didn't get I didn't get OG true crime and cocktails, Laura Nash sloppy, but I got loose, and I got looser towards the end. You know, a little bit. Yeah, that bit that raw. was loose and buzzy. This so far is just loose. Yeah. Yeah. But what I'm saying is I'm on glass three, so uh, good luck um, <laughs> to everyone who's listening. Yeah. It was lovely uh, talking to you while I'm lucid, <laughs> and I hope I still am cognizant by the end of this ep. I also love when you shorten words uh, unnecessarily so, but I live for it all the time. Uh, you are the hip one. Of the two of us. Barely. Oh. Barely. You get the things kids say. I barely understand them. You were using mid long before I was, like, cluing into what that meant. You know what one hasn't really... uh, I have not really been able to utilize properly yet, though, Mm. that the kids are using? Bet. Have you heard how they use this? No. So... From what I can tell, from what Nana can tell, um, somebody will be like, um, this is terrible. From what I can tell, it'll be like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to meet you for drinks. I'm going to meet you for drinks. Bet. I think meaning like, bet you won't or bet you will. I can't fully tell. Again, I haven't been able to use or utilize it properly because it doesn't fully make sense to me yet. And I know that by bringing this up now, I'm sure we're going to be getting a lot of responses about how to properly use it uh, or or not. I don't know. The point is, is that um, I think if it's that hard to understand, it's probably not going to be something I, I implement long term. Sure. You know? Sure. I but just recently never. learned uh, that the kids uh, no longer use the word out in outfit. They're just fits now. Yeah. I did know that. Yeah. This is the fit. See? Yeah. See? You're you're always on the cusp. You got a finger on the pulse. You know what's going on. Whereas I learn it down the road and I just go, ah, yeah, okay. (laughs) Hey, don't. Listen. Listen. But this is, again, why together, one brain. You're right. You're right. Oh, my God. We each have one brain. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying together it would be the perfect brain. It would have all the information, all the strengths, all the everything. Yeah. I just feel like, oh, God, there's a movie in there somewhere of, like, the brain where the speech is one of our voices, but you can hear the other one in the head being like, I feel fantastic. Do you feel good? In a world where brain transplants are real, 
two best friends decide to put their brains together in yeah. Two Heads Are Better Than One. Come Somebody on. wash coming and making. <laughs> Come on, this thing. It just continues to write itself. Ugh. It really, it really does. If we aren't filming it by the end of the year, my God. If we aren't, yeah, there's a problem. There's a real, real problem. Yeah. Um, listen, everybody. What a wild ride we take people on. <laughs> I just had to check in on that for a second. Yeah. Screaming, uh, you know, again, a little into the sauce, yeah. sharing brains, Channing Tatum, and now <laughs> true crime. Yeah. And to that I say, what a gift. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's who we are. Uh, yep. we, we like a journey. Uh, yes. And I know this is going to anger some. But uh, before we get to the true crime, oh sure, Sorry. I want to give I I want to give a shout out. Oh please, yes. So this past weekend, uh, we we get messages and we get like comments on things and we get tweets and stuff like that. Uh, but this weekend in particular, I happened to be on Twitter and noticed I got we not I personally our account uh, got a message from. Uh, our longtime True Crew member, very dear Marion. Oh, sure. So uh, Marion had asked uh, if you and I were ever going to get into the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh. And so I immediately Googled and was like, when is that? Like, I know it's sometime around now. Well, the answer was the fin- like the finale, final, like whole thing was just starting. And it turns out you could like, li- like they were live streaming it on YouTube. So I was like, sweet, I've already got it set up. Uh, so I immediately started watching it. I was five minutes, maybe, into this show. And suddenly I'm screaming when Spain is getting points. Have I heard any of the songs? Do I know any of the backstories? No. There's just something about them getting points. It was just so infectious. It took over me. I couldn't help myself. So about so you were screaming positively. Yes, I was just anytime they got like it was full fists in the air, full screaming. I got teary. I was emotional. And again, I have no horse in this race. I don't know what's going on. I barely understand points coming up. I'm like, what's that for? What's happening? The point is, I got so invested it started with me watching it on my laptop and turned into suddenly it was on our TV so more of us could watch it. And it turned into my teenager uh, standing at it at the door because he had to work and went, okay, well, are, are they going to tell us the points? <laughs> Who's getting those points? And then we were like, dude, you got to go to work. And he just went, uh, I, I, I think it's fine. I can be late. And we were like, you can't be late because of the Eurovision Song Contest. So we had to like send him a screenshot of the finals and he was not happy. <laughs> Again, none of us had had anything to do with this beforehand. It's just we got so invested in just everything and it was what a journey because it you go from like this per this this country is in 21st place. But guess what? The the viewers at home gave them 500 points. They're now in first. And it's like, how is there? The person before got five points. How did they have five? Like, it's 
It doesn't make sense. And then when a country doesn't get any points from the public, then you feel bad. And it's just the emotional roller coaster that it was. Oh, God, what a journey. I have already started following all of the Eurovision accounts that I can so that I remember next year because I'm going to get in this right from the start. Uh, so shout out, Marion. Uh, for getting me into this, because what a beautiful two hours of my life that was. It was also amazing to see everyone in my home go from, how are you getting excited, to also being excited (laughs) that people we had never heard uh, get points. It was beautiful. And just for the record, I went afterwards, and since then, to listen to the actual songs, my top three are Spain, Armenia, and the Czech Republic. So your your instinct about Spain was correct. Yeah. Oh, she her her hit slaps. Kids still say that, right? Uh, it was it's catchy. There's something about it, and she reminded me of one of the characters from the Will Ferrell movie, which I think which is love, which I do love, and I think that's part of why I got so invested because I'm like, oh, this makes me think of that movie and. It was it was just, oh, God, I just need it in my life. And there was something about it. And just everyone seemed so lovely. And just the points you don't see coming out of anywhere. There's no rhyme or reason to how many points. And you, like, one team gets two, and then the next team gets 150. And you're like, what's, like, how is this calculate? Like, I don't know. I don't know, but what a joy. What a joy. There was a lot of screaming. I got emotional and then just went, I don't even know anymore. And let it go. Because, you know, my family understands now when I get emotional. Just, just leave her. I love this. I love all of this. I'm going to get into it next year with you. And I'll tell you why. I got into American Song Contest, which was on NBC this year. Right. Um, And this is, I'm not, they're not paying me to say this. Um, But I was... Uh, lucky enough to go to one of the final live episodes hosted by uh, our gal Kelly Clarkson and Snoop Dogg. And right. what I remarked about, uh, I, I early on, I really responded to Puerto Rico and I believe it was Kentucky. There's a K-pop girl. I'll Google it on the break to make sure I'm not misquoting myself. But anyway, sure. um, those were the two that really stood out to me. But anyway, what I remarked about, first of all, was like, being there live was phenomenal because it was like you were at a concert, but sure. you were seeing a million different genres. It wasn't right. like seeing one band or even a festival where you're probably going to see bands that are of the same, typically sure. kind of the same, similar genres. This was across the the map. Don't pardon the pun. Thank you. Um, yeah, and uh, it, it really is infectious. I agree. And I know that this is very similar, obviously, to Eurovision, which, of course, existed before this. Yes. Um, so what I'm saying is I'm on board. Oh, of course you are. Oh, I can't yeah. wait. I can't yeah. wait. I have zero concept of how it's all going to work, but I can't wait to dive in. Uh, I'm so excited about it. I just – we we have since gone through different years. People – Bless their hearts, and thank you for those who've done it, have gone through and done, like, here is 25 minutes. It's a clip from each song from the 40-some countries, and go. So you only get, like, a snippet, but you get enough that you're like, I could like that, or I might not. Uh, So we watched that. 
I took notes on which countries I wanted to hear the full song and then uh, narrowed it down to my top three. Why? She likes a list. She likes a list. Uh, but yeah, there you go, Marion. Well, I love that. 2023, love watch that. out for True Crime and Cocktails and Eurovision? Who yes. knows? Who knows? I love that. I love that. It's a beautiful thing. And yes, shout out, Marion. Lovely, lovely person uh, and OG True Crew member, of yes. course. Um, well, listen, on that note, we're going to get into it. We're there. It's happening. Uh, today's episode, we're talking, of course, about Malcolm Webster. Uh, if you don't know anything about Malcolm Webster, do not fret because I'm going to give you a bit of a synopsis right now. Malcolm Webster was a charming, charismatic man who was well-liked by everyone who met him. When he got married in 1992, he was living what friends described as a fairy tale life. But sadly, less than a year into the marriage, Malcolm's wife died in a tragic car accident. Then, over the next few years, a series of fires destroyed most of Malcolm and his late wife's belongings. It's a sympathetic tale of a man with a seemingly long string of bad luck. That is, until you learn that Malcolm is personally responsible for every bad thing in his adult life. In a case sure to tantalize my psychologist hat, join us as Christy Oxborough walks us through the life of Malcolm Webster, a man accused of plotting to kill two intimate partners while also being a proven murderer, con artist, pyromaniac, pathological liar, and outright psychopath. <laughs> There's so many things I love about this synopsis. Very quickly, one, it was, um, I, I very quickly... It's a sympathetic tale of a man with a... That's Unsolved Mysteries. You've you've written... Or I could also hear Keith Morrison. Oh. It's a sympathetic tale. I could hear his voice. I mean, you're starting to get in... You're starting to write for the genre. You don't even, you don't even hear it. It's beautiful. I, I, I took a turn this week writing that synopsis. Oh, I love it. I also love it, again, because as we've said on the show before, but for those who maybe haven't heard, we don't read, we don't pre-read these. I didn't pre-read this. So again, you probably heard my voice start to smile partway through because then I started to realize that she's written it in my voice. So in, in sure to tantalize my psychologist hat. I mean, this is the greatest. Uh, yeah, you, you've raised the bar again. Well, I, I couldn't be happier about it. I... I don't even know who she is anymore. It was, I, I don't even know. I don't know. I try my I best to end them it. with Christy Oxborough Investigates, but I was like, no, 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 we're going to take this one on a different, <laughs> different turn. Because again, I stand by you, the psychologist hat of this entire thing alone is bananas. Oh, I'm jazz. I'd never heard of this man. At I all. have not either. So, and I don't know if I'm, it's because it was like European and also New Zealand comes in, and so I don't know if that's why I'd never heard of him. But it's like, how is not? How is everyone not talking about this man? Well, y yeah, you're right. Sometimes the news just doesn't travel to where we're living. I mean, I think that that's true, and vice versa, right? Like, right. Sometimes that happens. But anyway. I'm in, I'm buckled in, yeah. I am ready to go, lay it on me, cannot wait. Well, you'll also love, uh, I've also done this in a different way, in a different format than normally. Normally I start from their beginning of their life and I move forward. This, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the good and then we're gonna get into his life and we're gonna get into the childhood later at the end when you're like, where did all this come from? And it's killing you. Then I'm going to be like, this is where it came from. 
I have things to say. I'll, I'll save them for the end. I'm I, already, I, I like, produced the hell out of this episode. I was just going to say, I was like, normally we're in touch to some level about the episode throughout the week. She has not said a peep about this. I've not yeah. heard a word. And now I know why. Because you're over there being a goddamn magician. <laughs> casting spells and I didn't even realize I'm ready to go. I'm going to shut my damn mouth. Why would I try and uh, give any spoilers when all I want to do is talk to you about Channing Tatum (laughs) and his comedic ability, which again, give him more credit for it, folks. Unprecedented. Yeah. So I know I said this one was different, but like the ones we usually do, disclaimer, this episode will contain mentions of suicide, abortion, and intimate partner violence. Trigger warning for those who need it. So Malcolm Webster was described as likable, well-spoken, popular, and all-around lovely. He was a well-respected nurse at a hospital. In 1991, Malcolm attended a party where he met Claire Morris a nurse at Moorfields Hospital. The next day, he immediately started to shower Claire with gifts and flowers. The two fall hard and fast and soon move to Aberdeen, Scotland, where they both get a job at Grampian NHS. Claire started to study for a healthcare science degree at the University of Aberdeen. Friends and family described the couple as a fairy tale romance, but Claire's mother, Betty, was skeptical, as she felt there was something off about Malcolm. But Claire was head over heels and in love for the first time in her life. Malcolm was gregarious, pleasant, and Claire believed that she had done really well for herself. I realize I got the year wrong in the synopsis, but on September 3rd, 1993, Malcolm and Claire uh, got married in a traditional Scottish ceremony at King's College Chapel in Aberdeen. I was surprised to see it was a traditional ceremony, complete with kilts, as Malcolm and Claire were both British, but I guess they lived in Scotland, so do as the Scottish do, I guess? That's interesting. Uh, The entire event was described as lively and fun. After the wedding, the couple moved north to Aberdeenshire uh, into Easter Caddy Cottage, their first home together. Around this time, Claire started to feel unwell and just constantly tired. She chalked it up to a combination of the move and school. On May 27, 1994, Malcolm was working on a report for the Aberdeen's Chil- Aberdeen Children's Hospital that needed to be on the manager's desk by 9 a.m. the next morning. So at 11.30 p.m., Malcolm decided to drive to Aberdeen to deliver the report. Claire offered to go along for the ride. Partway there, Malcolm realized he'd forgotten something, so he turned around to head back home, this time taking Harncrook Road, which is a single track, quite bendy and more rural. Malcolm saw a motorcyclist coming towards them, so he veered off to the left to avoid it and ended up going down a steep embankment off the road, crashing their car into a tree. The vehicle caught fire, and only Malcolm was able to get out before the car exploded. Claire was just 32 years old. Claire was described as positive, bubbly, loving, and gentle. She was a sweet girl who always thought the best of everyone. She was adopted by a well-respected GP and his wife in Kent shortly after she was born, uh, where she grew up in a loving home. 
The family lived in Australia for six years for her father's job before returning to the UK in 1972. Claire went to a private school in Broadstairs, Kent, where she was described as popular. She held the position of head girl, which you may recall from the Jill Dando episode. Yes. Uh, Claire trained at Westminster Hospital in London and became a state-registered nurse. She specialized in eye care at Moorfields Hospital when she met Malcolm. Malcolm was given oxygen at the scene and then transported to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, where he was examined around 4 a.m. His pulse and blood pressure were normal, but he complained of pain. Malcolm remained in a hospital for a week. Malcolm's first statement to police was, quote, The first thing I remember is getting out my door. I had to use my leg to push it in. I think I saw trees outside her door, and I decided I couldn't get it open. I knew I could not kick it open from my side. I decided to pull Claire out my door. I couldn't get her out. I remember smelling smoke and petrol and another smell I can only describe as warmth. I remember crawling through stinging nettles up to the road. Malcolm claimed he tried to pull Claire through the driver's side door, but that he collapsed and lost consciousness. He believes if the motorcyclist had stopped, they could have got Claire out of the car. Investigators believe the fire was caused by petrol, or gas, being ignited by the hot manifold. Investigators concluded that Claire's death was a tragic accident. Malcolm appeared at the funeral in a neck brace and a wheelchair, As expected, Malcolm was devastated. We're talking full-on wailing at her graveside. Um, For months after Claire's death, Malcolm decided he needed to get away from the tragedy altogether and leave Scotland. So he traveled for a while and ended up in Saudi Arabia, where he worked at a hospital. One night in May 1996, while attending a dinner party in Riyadh, he met Felicity Drum, a cancer nurse visiting from New Zealand. Felicity said the next few months with Malcolm were bliss. From the moment they met, he showered her with flowers, chocolates, and affection. She described him as caring and kind. In January 1997, Malcolm proposed to Felicity during a brief holiday in the UK. The couple uh, went to Felicity's native New Zealand, where they were married at St. Andrew's Catholic Church in Milford on uh, April 26, 1997. They spent their honeymoon at Cook's Beach on the Coromandel Peninsula in northern New Zealand. It seemed as though Malcolm had finally found happiness again, but on the first night of their honeymoon, Felicity started to feel unwell. And after a post-dinner cup of tea, Felicity went to bed and slept for 36 hours straight. After they returned home, Felicity experienced headaches, blackouts, fatigue, and double vision. She went to see a neurologist and told him her symptoms uh, and that she had noticed a bitter taste to everything she ate. At first, the doctor believed that Felicity had a uh, some sort of migraine, but then wondered if the strange taste was a sign of dyskusia, which is a disorder that distorts your uh, sense of taste. The doctor reassured her, though, she did not have a brain tumor or epilepsy, which were Felicity's main concerns. 
In May 1997, Malcolm got a new job, so he and Felicity moved to Aberdeenshire in Scotland. A few months later, they discovered that Felicity was pregnant. And while Felicity was delighted with the news, Malcolm? Not so much. Malcolm allegedly flew into a rage when learning the news and started to list off all the reasons they shouldn't have a child, including the immense cost involved in raising children. Felicity later said that Malcolm, quote, did eventually calm down and even began to look forward to the birth. Felicity's health continued to spiral. She was losing her balance, slurring her words, and sleeping for long periods of a to- at, at a time. Felicity became concerned for her unborn child, so she went to the doctor around four months, but no cause was ever found of what was going on. The doctor believed Felicity was just feeling the effects of stress from the pregnancy and the move. In September 1997, Felicity came home from work to discover the cottage she shared with Malcolm was on fire. Malcolm said he had arrived just in time to grab a few essential items um, and told her, don't worry, we're insured. It's not a concern. Felicity's handbag, including her New Zealand driver's license and other identification documents, were among the things that they lost in the fire. Felicity gave birth to the couple's son, Edward, in May 1998, and they made the choice to go back to New Zealand to be closer to Felicity's family. As the family prepared for the move, they put some of their items into a storage unit uh, with a moving company called Shore Porters Society. On November 12, 1998, the facility, which had belongings from hundreds of people, went up in flames. The blaze went on for days, and more than 80 firefighters attended the scene. The total, yeah, the total amount lost was estimated to be worth more than five million pounds, which is equivalent to about 6.1 million U.S. dollars. An investigation concluded the fire started from a gas blowtorch that had been left on the roof. Investigators believe the blowtorch ignited, although they don't know how that happened. After the fire, Malcolm filed a claim for nearly 88,000 British pounds with an insurance company who fought him on the amount. Insurance eventually doled out about 68,000 pounds, and soon after, the couple left for New Zealand, where they stayed with Felicity's parents. The couple had dreams of buying a large family home of their own in North Shore, Auckland, but Malcolm needed to sell the cottage in Aberdeenshire first, a process that dragged out for several months. Felicity sold the smaller home that she owned and gave the money as a deposit for their dream house, but Malcolm was dragging his feet about getting his half of the deposit. But before they were able to reach a deal, the dream house uh, was the scene of an arson. In February 1999, investigators believed that someone had stuffed paper through the mail slot on the front door and set them on fire. It wasn't a major fire, and the house was still very livable. Uh, A few days later, the couple uh, dealt with another fire, this time at the home of Felicity's parents. Felicity woke to the sound of a large crack. She woke Malcolm and asked him to go check it out. After some prodding, he went and found an armchair in the living room had caught fire. Felicity grabbed their son and they fled the house while Felicity's father used buckets of water to try and extinguish the flames. 
During that moment, Malcolm turned to his father-in-law and said, quote, Oh, we'll laugh about this later. <laughs> Not, I don't, read, I the, don't know. read the room, Malcolm. I don't read know, the Malcolm. room. I don't know that, that that I would ever laugh about a home. No, a uh, home of ablaze. But yeah, okay. Uh, thankfully, the house wasn't completely destroyed. However, uh, they all moved in with one of Felicity's sisters. Now, as though this family hasn't been through enough already, on February twelfth, nineteen ninety nine, a week after the fire at Felicity's parents' house, Malcolm and Felicity headed to an appointment at the bank with the plan of going on to her lawyer's office to make things final on their dream home. Since Malcolm's share of the deposit had yet to show up, they borrowed money from Felicity's father, as well as a lawyer friend. Malcolm said they would both be paid back very soon, and he blamed the Scottish banking system for all of the delays. So Malcolm and Felicity are in the car heading to the bank, uh, they crossed the Auckland Harbor Bridge when Malcolm claimed he was having trouble steering the car. When they got to the Northwestern Motorway, Malcolm started shouting that the car was out of control. They weaved across multiple lanes of traffic as the car started to pick up speed. To quote Felicity, quote, The car went across to the right across two lanes of traffic then back across another two lanes of traffic. We were traveling at high speed towards a motorway lamp, which was going to hit my side of the car. I was screaming at Malcolm to watch out for the lamp. I grabbed the steering wheel and turned it towards Malcolm. There wasn't anything wrong with the steering. The car responded. The car veered into a ditch, but thankfully there was only minor damage and no one was hurt. Felicity insisted on continuing to their bank appointment, but Malcolm suddenly clutched his chest and said he was having a heart attack. A police officer who passed by the scene called for an ambulance. Felicity said, quote, he clutched his chest again, went all clammy, said he was in pain and got all tearful. He said, I love you, Felicity, and said he had left me well provided for if anything should happen to him. Felicity considered heading to the bank appointment herself, as they would potentially lose the house and her deposit if they didn't, but Malcolm begged her to go to the hospital with him. She did. Tests were run, but doctors couldn't find anything wrong with Malcolm, so he was quickly released. A week later, on February 18th, Malcolm proudly announced his finances had finally come through, and they could officially get the house. He told Felicity he wanted to take the family for a picnic to celebrate. Felicity drove this time, with Malcolm giving her directions to, sp to a spot on the coast, about an hour away. Partway through the trip, Malcolm handed Felicity a water bottle to uh, keep her fluids up. And that's the last thing Felicity remembers. The next thing she knew, Felicity woke up to the sound of her cell phone ringing repeatedly. As Felicity came to, she looked around and noticed that she was in their car in a forest. She said everything was blurry, but she could see Malcolm pushing their son in his stroller about 300 yards or 900 feet away. Felicity finally answered her phone. It was her father. He said, quote, you have to come home right now. It doesn't matter what Malcolm says. You just have to stop whatever you're doing and get home. It's serious. So Felicity panics. She gets out of the car, yells for Malcolm to come back. 
Malcolm, at the sight of seeing Felicity, says, quote, What the hell are you doing awake? You need to go back to sleep. I was just going for a walk. Whoa. Okay. Oh, this 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 gives. This will continue. This will continue yeah. to give. Jeez. Okay. So Felicity said that something bad had happened to a family member. They needed to get home immediately. She noticed that Malcolm was nervous and sweaty on the drive to her sister's house. When they arrived, Malcolm said, your dad's going to tell you a lot of nonsense about me and your money. Then Malcolm got out of the car and walked away. (laughs) When Felicity's father arrived, he told her her money was gone. An account that had over 391,000 New Zealand dollars or 245,000 US dollars now contained about 12 New Zealand dollars or 753 American. Malcolm had rerouted Felicity's bank statements to a secret post office box so she wouldn't notice as he slowly transferred money from her account to one of his own in Scotland. And that was the moment Felicity realized her husband had stolen her life savings and that he had been trying to kill her for insurance money. She realized that Malcolm had been secretly drugging her for years, even while she was pregnant with their son. The baby suffered from terrible eczema from birth, but it cleared up within weeks of Malcolm's departure. Felicity had hair samples tested, and they confirmed that there was a prolonged presence of drugs in her system. Then Felicity found emails on Malcolm's laptop that were sent between Malcolm and some real estate agents in Cornwall and Devon. Malcolm had told them he was moving back to the area with his infant son. Felicity looked through their home where she found a briefcase containing nine insurance policies, all with Felicity's signature, even though she had never seen the documents before. The policies totaled roughly 1.9 million New Zealand dollars or 1.2 million US dollars. Right after they started dating, Malcolm had tried to convince Felicity to sign life insurance papers, claiming that they were to protect her if something were to happen to him. With the policies, there were also plane tickets for Malcolm and Edward, but nothing for Felicity. Oh my God. And remember, that first accident, uh, when Malcolm claimed he couldn't control the steering and then Felicity wanted to continue on to the bank and Malcolm faked a heart attack. Well, that day, Felicity's brother went to the impound lot where Felicity's car had been taken. He found a jerry can of gas in the trunk, a plastic cigarette lighter in the center console, which is interesting to own since neither of them smoked. Have in your house? Sure. Have in your car? Why? Why? Uh, Felicity confronted Malcolm about the money, he said, quote, I gave you a son and a good life. You'd have died happy. Oh, my God. Malcolm, of course, left the country. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but he sent Felicity a letter saying, quote, I still regard you as the most important person in my life. You are the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. We can get through this. I'm either an optimist or a fool. But I just want to tell you that I love you. (laughs) 
The couple uh, then got into a very heated battle over the custody of their son. Despite Mal- Malcolm's initial feelings when Felicity's first first announced her pregnancy, he was determined to have sole custody of the boy. Malcolm tried to claim that Felicity was an unfit mother. He even got his father involved. His father told Felicity he would make sure that Malcolm was awarded custody. Ugh. Felicity went to the local police and spoke with detectives for nearly seven hours. She told them about all of the fires that had occurred, about the poisoning, and how it was likely that Malcolm planned to kill her the day that she was passed out in the car. While she spoke with police, Malcolm headed to the airport and flew to the UK. Oh my god. In 2000, an arrest warrant was issued for Malcolm on four charges, including two arsons, the attempted murder of Felicity, and, quote, stupefying of Felicity with drugs. By this point, Malcolm was in the wind. In 2003, police learned that Malcolm was back in Scotland after he sent a series of rambling letters to Felicity and their son. In them, he claimed that Felicity had made wild and untrue allegations against him. The letters were postmarked from a post office on the west coast of Scotland. After that, the investigation into Malcolm Webster went cold. After fleeing New Zealand in 1999, Malcolm hid in Scotland. In 2002, he got a job at a local hospital in the small, family-friendly community of Oban, Argyle, Scotland. He was well-liked by the community and began and became highly respected in his profession. In August 2004, Malcolm meets 41-year-old Simone Banerjee, a senior nurse on her first day at the Lornan Islands District General Hospital in Oban. Weird synchronicity, Banerjee was the same last name as the original owner of Chippendales. For more information on that, check out episode 69. At their first meeting, Simone was faxing her father the details of a house worth 270,000 pounds, or 330,000 US dollars, that she was interested in buying. Malcolm looked at the paperwork and said, since he was once an estate agent, Simone could be rest assured that the paperwork was good. Of course, he's never been an estate agent. Ugh. During the same conversation, Simone mentioned she had a trust fund set up by her parents, so given Malcolm's past behaviors, it's no surprise he would start a relationship with Simone. Oh boy. The thing is, Simone wasn't interested at first. Uh, Malcolm said he was a widower and would often get emotional telling Simone's stories of his first wife. He even took Simone to visit his wife's grave. Malcolm told Simone that after the accident, he was in intensive care for a week. He was not. He also told Simone that Claire was pregnant at the time of her death. She was not. Simone described Malcolm as, quote, a well-spoken gentleman who treats you well. There were no big, massive gestures, just a constant drip of nice things. It wasn't until months later in December that Simone and Malcolm became a couple. Soon after, on December 1st, Malcolm's father died. On the day of the funeral, Malcolm contacted Simone to reveal that Malcolm had been diagnosed with leukemia and that it was terminal. Malcolm rented a cottage about 20 miles or 32 kilometers away from Simone. 
so he would often call her in the middle of the night, telling her that the cancer had him in absolute agony, so Simone would drive to Malcolm's place to comfort him. Then Simone felt that Malcolm shouldn't be left alone, so she asked Malcolm what his plans were for the holidays. He said he would just be spending them alone, so Simone invited Malcolm to her place. They grew closer, and a relationship blossomed. Uh In January 2006, Malcolm allegedly started treatment for this leukemia, but in reality, he just shaved off all of his body hair, including eyebrows, uh, to continue the ruse that he had cancer. Because he, in fact, did not. He also went so far as to drop some weight and even created needle marks in his arm to help sell the cancer lie. Stop it! Malcolm used his days off, uh, or holidays, went to do treatment, choosing not to take any days off work. But of course, he couldn't take days off work, because for something like that, you probably need a doctor's note that proves that you're sick. (sighs) He was also traveling to Glasgow for these supposed treatments, when in reality, he was meeting up with other women. Stop! During his relationship with Simone, Malcolm was also seeing at least three other women. He had a week-long holiday in Paris with a woman named Brenda Grant, who was also told that Malcolm had terminal cancer. Simone invites Malcolm to move in with her, and in February 2006, Simone and Malcolm made each other the sole beneficiary of their estates. There was no proof that Malcolm had taken any insurance policies on Simone, but even without them, because of her will, Malcolm would stand to gain 300,000 pounds or nearly 370,000 US dollars if something were to happen to Simone. In September 2006, during dinner at a local hotel, Malcolm proposed to Simone with a ring worth £6,000 or 7300 US dollars, which he bought with the money he stole from his second wife, I might add. Uh, unbeknownst to Malcolm, while he was trying to prepare for his third marriage, Felicity's sister, Jane Drum, was in the UK speaking with the police. She received a Winston Churchill Fellowship for her work assisting families who are victims of domestic violence. Jane was one of 20 fellowship winners between 2003 and 2005. The fellowship allowed Jane to travel to Leeds, where she worked closely with the police to see how cases involving domestic violence were handled in the UK. While there, Jane stayed with a female police superintendent, and one night when the women were talking, Jane mentioned Felicity and the whole situation with Malcolm. The officer was so shocked by what she heard, she made some calls and brought in some Scottish detectives to interview Jane. And while the police were very interested in the fires and the attempted murder, they were more interested in the death of Malcolm's first wife, Claire. Her death had been deemed an accident, but since Malcolm was caught seemingly trying to do the exact same thing to Felicity, was it possible that Claire's death was actually a homicide? I should also say, none of the investigation would have ever happened if it wasn't for Felicity's sister having that chat and getting that going. So, Wow. Kudos to her for that. Uh, And for the fellowship. That's very impressive. Uh, In December 2006, police opened an investigation into Malcolm Webster called Operation Liffey. 
But as the investigation began, the investigators learned that Malcolm was engaged to a wealthy woman, which made them concerned that Simone Banerjee would be Malcolm's next victim. Officers wanted to warn Simone in some way, so they requested to give her an Osman letter, but due to a lack of evidence, their request was denied. Osman, side note. An Osman warning is a letter or notice issued by British police to the potential victim of a death threat or a high-risk murder. The warnings are given to the potential victim when there is word that the person's life is threatened, but there isn't enough evidence to arrest the potential suspect who might murder them. The warning is named for the 1998 case of Osman versus United Kingdom. Basically, there was a teacher named Paul Paget Lewis who became obsessed with a 14-year-old student named Amit Osman. Paul followed the kid home, took pictures of him, all this weird stuff. Amit's parents complained to the school, police got involved, then someone spray-painted sexually graphic graffiti about Amit inside the school. Paul denied any involvement. A month later, Paul legally changed his name to Paul Ahmet Osman. Oh my god. Which made the school reach out to the police again. Between May and June 1987, Paul was interviewed by a psychiatrist on three separate occasions. The psychiatrist concluded that while Paul wasn't mentally ill, he should absolutely be transferred to another school. Despite the transfer happening, the harassment of Ahmet continued. Dog feces was left on their doorstep. The family's car tires were slashed. Their windshield was broken. In, May in March 1988, Paul went to the Ahmet's house where he shot Ahmet and shot and killed Ahmet's father, Ali. He then went to his former boss's house where he shot and killed the man's son. The murders sparked public outrage as the public felt the police were told repeatedly about Paul's actions, but that they didn't act until the harassment had escalated too far. The English courts concluded the police owed no duty of care to the victims, which led to the creation of Osman warnings. And just because this dude is gross, a quote from Paul Paget Lewis when he was arrested, he said, quote, Why didn't you stop me before I did it? I gave you all the warning signs. <sighs> <sighs> I can't. Yep. I can't. Uh, between 2014 and 2018, Scottish police issued 1,022 Osman warnings. Wow. At this point, investigators with Operation Liffey were still unable to find any evidence against Malcolm. They tried to get the Grampian police to reopen Claire Morris's case, but since her death was listed as an accident, they felt there wasn't sufficient evidence to do so. But in December 2007, the investigators of Operation Liffey got a tip about a fire in 2003 at a hospital in Oban, where Malcolm was working at the time. Some paper was set on fire in a garbage can in a patient's room at the Lorne Islands Hospital. Malcolm was conveniently the first person to spot the fire and put it out. He was labeled a hero. But investigators were skeptical, as the patient in the room suffered from dementia and didn't have the dexterity to use a lighter. Not to mention, where would the patient even get a lighter or any sort of matches from to begin with? 
And then there's the fact that there was such a short period of time between the fire being lit and Malcolm magically discovering it that it seems unlikely someone else could have been the culprit. Using this information, the investigators put in a second request to give Simone and Osmond warning, and this time, thanks to the new potential fire evidence, their request was granted. In January 2008, police met with Simone at the hospital, where she took them to a private room. The thing about the Osmond warning is that the officers who deliver the letter are very limited as to what they can say to the potential victim. They can only discuss exactly what's in the letter. They can't give any other details. In this case, they could only tell Simone that her life would be in danger if she continued her relationship with Malcolm Webster. And I just can't wrap my brain around how shocking and horrific it would be to receive a letter like that. Um, Simone got to work that morning. She w- At the time, she was going through IVF treatments to start a family with Malcolm, the man she was about to marry. Then she finds out he's a threat to her life. But Simone, the worst part of the letter was that's how she learned that Malcolm had a wife and child in New Zealand. Simone had heard about the death of Malcolm's first wife. She had no idea he had a son or that he was still legally married to someone else. And yes, at this point, Felicity had outright refused a divorce because she believed if she stayed married to him, he wouldn't be able to marry someone else and do this to somebody else. (sighs) Um, Simone also had no idea that Malcolm had ever married a second time after his first wife died. Later, Simone said, quote, My initial reaction was disbelief. I thought it was must have been a dreadful mistake. Surely he's not married. The person I love was kind and caring. This was ludicrous rubbish. Police were placed outside Simone's house when she went home to confront Malcolm on February 4th, 2008. As soon as she mentioned Felicity, Malcolm silently walked past Simone, went upstairs, and packed a bag. Then he printed off a document which gave up his claim to Simone's estate and then walked out the door without saying a word. I... I I haven't even heard all of it yet, and I'm mm-hmm. fascinated by this man. Mm-hmm. Listen, let's take a quick break, get another drink, hit the can, and I'm sure we have so much yet to come about the truly intriguing Malcolm Webster on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime of Cocktails. We're, of course, talking about Matt. Well, Malcolm Webster. I'm on the edge of my seat. Again, I came into this not knowing anything, which is kind Mm -hmm. of truthfully always my favorite way to come into this show. Not that Chrissy doesn't teach me something about every case in person because she always does. But this one, I've got to be honest, I'm scribbling furiously because this is, she was right, it's tantalizing me. My my, my psychologist hat is, is on. I need to know what happens next. Please continue. Well, as per his pattern, when Malcolm was confronted by a woman, he fled the country. So after Simone he went home to Aberdeen. The same day that Simone confronted him, Malcolm went to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and told the doctors he was planning to take his own life by overdosing on insulin. He then went to a hotel where he called his family and told them he was taking his own life. His sister raced to the hotel and found him just kind of hanging out. Didn't seem like there was any concern at all Mm -hmm. in the moment. Uh, So while Operation Livy investigators were trying to keep Simone safe, they were also looking into the accident that claimed Claire Morris's life. As a quick refresher, Malcolm and Claire were driving down a rural road after midnight when Malcolm saw a motorcycle, swerved off the road to avoid it, crashed into a tree where their car caught fire, and later exploded. But another key thing to remember is that when Malcolm was checked out by medical professionals soon after the crash, his blood pressure and pulse were both completely normal, which seems, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but that seems unlikely. I have uh, I have many thoughts about that. I I can't yeah. wait. Uh, Malcolm remained in hospital for a week claiming to be in terrible pain. He even showed up at Claire's funeral in a neck brace and a wheelchair. During an interview with police, Malcolm stated he suffered a neck injury, aching muscles, and that he fractured some ribs in the crash. Medical tests show no sign of a neck injury and no fractured anything. Doctors did numerous tests, including a CT scan, but couldn't find anything to explain Malcolm's symptoms suggesting that perhaps Malcolm, maybe, wasn't really hurt at all. The day before the accident, Claire made calls to her mother and her brother to mention that she and Malcolm had been in an accident a month before. They were out for a long drive on a remote road in the Highlands when their car went off the road. Claire said the car rolled into a small bush, which had prevented their car from going over into a ravine. A farmer used his tractor to pull them out of the ditch. Two car accidents so close together seemed suspicious. Claire blamed the fact that Malcolm was very tired. Then she admitted she hadn't been feeling well for herself for several weeks. She was genuinely concerned that she might have some sort of cancer. Claire had been to her doctor complaining of fatigue and had confided in a friend saying, quote, I'm not right. There's definitely something wrong with me. It started with Claire taking naps every afternoon and would escalate to her often sleeping through an entire weekend. 
Again, she was only 32. Uh, The day after the accident, a colleague went to Malcolm and Claire's home to get some clothes for Malcolm. While there, the colleague noticed three bottles of medication, one she couldn't recognize, um, and then she saw a bottle of Epilim and a bottle of Carbamazepam, both of which are epilepsy drugs. Neither Malcolm nor Claire suffer from epilepsy. The colleague also noted that the medicine bottles weren't from a chemist or a pharmacy, but rather the kind of bottles that they have at the hospital. Remember how I mentioned that Claire had been feeling out of sorts and just tired all the time? It turns out Malcolm had been crushing up sedatives and adding them to her food. Jesus. The belief is that Malcolm put Claire into the car after she passed out and then staged the vehicle to look like there had been an accident. Since there was about 20 minutes between the fire starting and the explosion, investigators believe that Malcolm opened the bonnet, or hood, of the vehicle, stuffed it full of newspaper, and poured three jerry cans of gas on it. Witnesses recall seeing melted jerry cans in the driver's seat of the vehicle. The fire was so intense that Claire needed to be identified by her dental records. A bus driver, on his way to pick up some inebriated customers from the nearby Haddo House Hotel, happened upon the crash shortly after it happened. The driver said he saw Malcolm on all fours crawling towards the road. The driver got out and ran to Malcolm, who seemed uninjured. Malcolm told the driver he had swerved to avoid a motorcycle. The driver asked if there was anyone else in the car. Malcolm said no. Wow. Mm-hmm. The driver then went to a nearby farm, asking the inhabitants to contact the police. While the driver was gone, the car caught on fire. A woman named Elizabeth Smith, who was on her way to pick up her boyfriend after a night at the pub, drove past the accident. She said it was dark except for the vehicle's headlights, um, but she didn't see anyone, so she didn't bother to stop, as she believed the driver was simply lamping for foxes, which is when you hunt in the dark and you use a spotlight to transfix an animal uh, before you shoot them. Uh, After picking up her boyfriend, Elizabeth passed by the scene again about 10 minutes later. She saw the car was on fire. Elizabeth and her boyfriend asked Malcolm, is there anyone else in the car? Malcolm said no. Oh my God. So he was an outright monster. Uh, After the accident, Malcolm would tell friends, quote, I'll never forget Claire's screams which was really off-putting for her friends, but witnesses who were there heard nothing. But it was also believed Claire was unconscious at the time of the accident. Malcolm also told multiple people that Claire was pregnant at the time of the crash. She wasn't. Uh, Basically, Malcolm is a pathological liar. Mm -hmm. Uh, Friends of Malcolm said they felt betrayed and that there was no inkling of any trouble at all in his marriage to Claire. Malcolm and Claire had been married just eight months at the time of Claire's death. And some things that don't add up about the accident, the road they were driving on uh, on the night of the accident was not the most direct route home. It was just the most quiet, unlit, rural road that they could possibly take. So if you forgot something and had to head home, why not take the shortest route? 
Also, no motorcyclist or any signs of a motorcycle have ever been found in regards to the crash. And when the car was examined, it was found to have no damage from the accident. The car had been completely gutted by the fire, but there was not a single scratch caused to the front of the car, despite it slamming into a tree so hard that it caught fire. Yeah. Less than two weeks after the funeral, Malcolm put in a claim for one of Claire's life insurance policies. It turns out in the months leading up to the fateful crash, Malcolm had taken out more than 10 life insurance policies on Claire, totaling 208,000 British pounds, which is equivalent to 255,000 US dollars. One of the policies was meant to pay off the mortgage for the couple's cottage, although Malcolm never used it for that. A week or so after the funeral, Malcolm arrived at a friend's house in a top-of-the-line Range Rover. When asked how he could possibly afford a car like that, Malcolm responded, quote, Well, luckily she was well insured. He then purchased a yacht. Because it turns out, shortly after they started dating, Malcolm requested he be added to Claire's will and he be made the sole beneficiary. Then he started taking out numerous life insurance policies on Claire, but when it came to signing the policies, he charmed and manipulated Claire into believing the policies were going to take care of her if something were to happen to him. After the wedding, Malcolm took out an additional two policies, including the one with mortgage protection. The idea that Malcolm staged the accident to murder his wife for money is upsetting enough, But what really turned my stomach was the fact that at the funeral, while playing the part of the grieving widow, Malcolm was howling and wailing so much that Claire's brother Peter held Malcolm's hand as Claire's coffin was lowered into the ground. What an absolute piece of garbage to take advantage of someone who was genuinely hurting over Claire's death. Malcolm also offered to send Claire's brother some of Claire's jewelry that he could give to Claire's niece later on. He actually never bothered to Uh. send any. And all that life insurance money he received after Claire's death, he spent it all by November, just five months later. When he decided it was time to leave the country and head to Saudi Arabia, where he worked for an IT company selling medical software to hospitals. Malcolm told his friends that his memories of Claire were too painful and that a change of scenery would help. But was the memory of Claire too painful? Because Malcolm made sure he was never alone. Oh, boy. What Malcolm's friends did not know is that just weeks after Claire's death, Malcolm had a romantic weekend aboard his new yacht with a woman named Dorothy Allen. He also brought Caroline McIntosh on his yacht for a weekend. Malcolm and Caroline met at a hospital they were both working at in the summer of 1994. Just weeks later, he invited her over for dinner. This was in August. Claire died at the end of May. Not a lot of grieving time there, Malcolm. Uh, Carolyn and Malcolm continued to date until he left for Saudi Arabia in December. He told her uh, he just needed to get away for a while, so she assumed they would just start dating again when he got back. But then she learned he was outright moving there for a job, not visiting there. And she thought he was taking a brief vacation, but learned he wasn't. And then he just up and stopped seeing her. 
During this time, Malcolm also dated Patricia Malcolm, a former hospital colleague who sent Malcolm a letter to say she was there for him as a friend after Claire's death. He then invited her over for dinner, after which he put on the 1990 romantic comedy Truly Madly Deeply, which was one of Claire's favorite movies. It's about a woman who's dealing with the death of her partner, played by the great Alan Rickman, Mm. uh, when he returns to Earth as a ghost. How I've never seen this movie, I'll never know, but I will rectify that shortly. Uh, It just feels like, I don't know, maybe not the most appropriate choice to watch on a date after your wife has just tragically died? Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Patricia said the night got uncomfortable when Malcolm laid on the couch and put his head on her knee during the movie. She said she didn't know what to do, so she just sat there. Another time, he took Patricia to visit Claire's grave. And you may recall me mentioning at one point Malcolm took Simone to Claire's grave, because apparently that's just what he did. He also took Brenda Grant and Catherine Brown there. Brenda was an American who met Malcolm online. After exchanging emails, Brenda traveled from Missouri to Scotland to meet Malcolm in August 1995. No. Malcolm told Brenda about the accident that took Claire's life and how his feet had been so badly burned in the fire. Which is impossible since he wasn't even remotely close to the vehicle when the fire started. Uh. Brenda said, quote, I didn't probe a lot. He would get very emotional. I recall him saying he'd fallen asleep at the wheel. He got extremely emotional any time he talked about Claire. Mm -hmm. Malcolm and Brenda remained off and on from 1995 to 2006, which not only overlaps his marriage to Felicity, it also overlaps his relationship with Simone. Oh, my God. Catherine, yeah. Catherine Brown met Malcolm in January 2005 when they were both working at a hospital in Oban. He would email Catherine things like, quote, Every time you see me, you will see a man that loves you. Barf. <laughs> and that's that's coming from a woman who is currently in love. It's just barf because I can't stand this man's face. Yeah. Oh, I mean... This is also a man who's saying this to so many women at the same time. So many. It's it's outrageous. <sighs> but we can't forget, while sending emails like that, he was also in the process of trying to woo Simone Banerjee. Malcolm was just an all-around creep. Malcolm also dated Christina Willis from 2002 to 2005, once again overlapping his relationship with Simone. Malcolm told Christina that his first wife died and he divorced his second wife due to her psychiatric problems. Please. Throughout their relationship, Christina often loaned Malcolm money, but when it came to paying her back, Malcolm just never seemed to have the money. Uh, For part of their relationship, they lived together and Malcolm had his bank statements sent to a secret post office box to avoid them lying around the house. Mm -hmm. Malcolm and Christina even had a power of attorney forms and wills made out, making each other the sole beneficiary. But in 2005, Malcolm ended the relationship after telling Christina that he had cancer. After his relationship with Simone, Malcolm dated Anne Hancock, a physiotherapist who met Malcolm at a training course in 2004. She initially described him as, quote, polite, charming, and generous individual. 
Anne said they got more serious in late 2007 and that he moved to Norwich, England to be with her. They were planning on buying a house together in December 2008 when Anne received an Osman letter. She said, quote, I didn't believe them. I just didn't believe it was true. I was stunned. I didn't believe the information they were saying or I was reading. It didn't match the person who I thought they were talking about. After Anne confronted Malcolm, he ran. He then sent her a letter saying, quote, I'm sorry to have hurt you. You won't have to hear from me again. I love you. I know I have a strange way of showing that to you. Okay. But probably the soonest relationship that Malcolm had after Claire's death was with a woman named Geraldine Oakley. Geraldine was a computer manager who worked at the hospital where Claire was taken following the accident. The, uh, they became friends quickly and dated months later, although Geraldine had wondered if Malcolm's only interest in her is what information she could get her hands on. When they first met shortly after Claire's death in 1994, Malcolm asked Geraldine repeatedly about whether there would be a second post-mortem or not. When Malcolm left for Saudi Arabia in 1995, he never spoke to Geraldine again. Wow. So this womanizer is clearly a case study for a psychologist hat. And during Operation Liffey, the investigators spoke with numerous criminologists and forensic psychologists to try and get a better understanding as to who Malcolm Webster truly was. Some of the professionals described Malcolm as a pathological liar who was driven by greed and his love of power. Criminologist David Wilson said that Malcolm was an outright psychopath as he is cunning and manipulative. According to David Wilson, there are three traits to a psychopath. One is interpersonal style, such as seducing or charming personality. Second is that they engage in risk-taking behaviors. Third, a psychopath has a defective emotional experience in that they know the proper words to use to express their emotions, but they don't know how those actual emotions feel. There is often a level of narcissism in psychopathy, and I would say always directing attention to yourself by lying about having terminal illnesses would count. Uh, now, David Wilson said, uh, quote, the best indication of future behavior is past behavior. And I know that Lauren has a lot of questions about Malcolm's past self. So let's take a look. I uh, can't wait. Malcolm John Webster was born April 18th, 1959 in Wandsworth, Greater London. His father, Alexander, who was inexplicably called Sandy? I don't know. Uh, was Detective Chief Superintendent in charge of the fraud squad of Metropolitan Police in London. His mother, Odette, was a former nurse who was working as a police officer in Surrey when she met Sandy. After they married in December 1952, Odette left her job to be a full-time housewife and soon mother. Malcolm has an older brother named Ian and a twin sister named Caroline, who Malcolm was born minutes after. So Malcolm was seen as the lowest on the pecking order and the runt of the litter. From the outside, the Websters seemed like a happy middle-class family, but it was said that Sandy was controlling and that he ruled with an iron fist. One odd example, and I have never 
heard anything like this before in my life. Uh, Sandy would demand that the house be completely empty when he used the bathroom. So the family would have to pack up and leave the house three times a day so that Sandy could essentially shit in peace. <laughs> Are you you okay? Yep. 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 This I've just I just I've never heard you can't even be in the house at the time. I've never heard anything like that before. Well, you're going to love this statement and I'm not going to yeah. I'm going to let you keep talking, but I will just say I think there is so much more to that than people will think is on the surface. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, there is something there. That's that the is I that is a wait to yeah. say it out loud. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Uh, the children were only allowed to speak during meals if they were addressed directly, which Sandy rarely did. Sandy and Odette were both described as cold and aloof, while Malcolm was seen as a loner who was content in his own company. However, his love of attention started young as he told people he was dyslexic to gain sympathy. Then he took things even further and told people he had epilepsy and asthma. He was never actually diagnosed with either. Then Malcolm told kids at school he had cancer. He didn't. As part of a camping trip for his scout troop, Malcolm stayed in a tent for 48 hours. But the adults there believed he had cancer, so they told the kids to just leave him be. It'll be fine. He came out of that tent 48 hours later like nothing happened. <sighs> I just... I don't know. Oh, he also told people uh, in his teen in in his teen years that he had a brain tumor. He didn't. Uh huh. At the age of fifteen, Malcolm left school with no formal formal qualifications. He started getting into petty crime. He stole money from his own house, but surprisingly, there are no police records of any of these instances. And I'm guessing that has something to do with his father being part of the fraud squad and yep. a police officer. Malcolm then tried his hand at sales and then worked as a binman or garbage man or waste collector, uh, depending where you live. At age 17, Malcolm decided to train as a nurse. He finished training at Epsom Hospital, uh, a nursing home in Bexhill near Hastings. While there, he started a romantic relationship with the daughter of the hospital's owner. She was 15. At the time, he was 19. Malcolm was then fired from his job at the hospital because it was discovered that money and items belonging to the patients had gone missing, and Malcolm was the likely suspect. Malcolm's girlfriend then soon became pregnant, and Malcolm strongly encouraged that she have an abortion. She later admitted she agreed to the abortion because she believed it would save their relationship. But right after the appointment, he broke up with her. Oh, God. Yeah, just when you think this man isn't going to get worse. He does. He finds a way. Uh. Malcolm then started seeing a girl he referred to as his first true love. I couldn't find her name or anything about her, but at some point, 
after their relationship ended, she took her own life. An investigator who looked into the girl's death years later, when Malcolm became suspicious, uh, said there was no signs of homicide whatsoever, uh, so he believes Malcolm wasn't involved. Uh, Friends say that they believe this was the moment that Malcolm officially shut down emotionally. Malcolm then started an affair with a woman who was eight years older than him. While the woman was married, uh, she was separated from her husband at the time of their relationship. But when her husband came back, the woman ended things with Malcolm to get back with her husband. Malcolm was devastated. Between 1980 and 1990, Malcolm lived a nomadic lifestyle. He claims he worked with Aboriginal children in the Australian outback, and that he worked as a nurse in hospitals and schools across Australia, New Zealand, and the Middle East. He finally settled down in Abu Dhabi after securing a job at a children's hospital in 1989. Less than six months later, Malcolm was asked to leave. So he was moved on, so he moved on to a nursing job in Guildford, Surrey. Why was he asked to leave? Well, in a few months uh, that he was there, three children under the age of six died from cardiac failure. Suspiciously, Malcolm was the one who discovered each body. Due to the customs of the United Arab Emirates, postmortems are rarely done, and bodies are buried typically right away. An inquiry was started into Malcolm's potential involvement into the three deaths, and he was suspended from duty. A former colleague and girlfriend, uh, Beth Brown, said, quote, The three deaths were unexplained, but as all the children were in a special care unit at the hospital, bosses there decided there was insufficient evidence to conduct a full police inquiry. Instead, they sacked Malcolm just hours after the third child died. Hospital administrators wondered if Malcolm had injected the children with something, as he was once found semi-conscious after experimentally injecting himself with insulin. But instead of a full inquiry, Malcolm was just told to leave the country. Malcolm's father, Sandy, arranged for Malcolm's flights home and even paid for them himself. In fact, there is no paperwork whatsoever to confirm that Malcolm was ever there, According to author Charles Lavery, uh, there are photos from various parties that place Malcolm in Abu Dhabi at the time, but there are no records saying he actually ever worked there. So, to quote Steve Buscemi, thank you very much, Pop. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And one more thing about Malcolm and his youth that we should discuss before moving on. By the age of seven, Malcolm had earned himself the nickname Pyro. During his time in Boy Scouts, Malcolm's interest in fires was described as borderline obsession. Oh boy. Malcolm claimed the job of building the fire anytime Scouts went on a camping trip. It was the first thing he did as soon as he got off the bus, and no one was allowed to touch it. He would sit and stare at it for hours, and he referred to the fire as, quote, his baby. As a child, he stole nail varnish remover and set it on fire. He burnt small bushes and garbage cans near his home. One of Malcolm's fellow scouts grew to be a grew up to be a sergeant with the Surrey police. In 2002, the sergeant wrote to the Grampian uh, police 
to point out the frequency of fires that occurred wherever Malcolm went. And sure enough, when unexplained hospital fires were plotted on a map, it matched up with places that Malcolm had lived. And the specific ones we know about, uh, such as the scene of Claire's death in 1994, where witnesses saw the melted jerry cans in the driver's seat of the car. Um, Shortly after Claire's death, there was a fire at the warehouse where Malcolm stored his and Claire's belongings. His friends were talking about what terrible luck it would have and that Malcolm had, and someone joked, well, at least we know it wasn't Malcolm because he was with you that day, to which the friend responded, no, he wasn't. He was with you. It turns out he was telling people different things to gain himself an alibi, it seems. In 1997, there was a fire at Malcolm and Felicity's cottage in Scotland. Felicity's handbag and New Zealand driver's license were lost in the blaze. Months after the fire, Felicity saw her New Zealand driver's license propped up on Malcolm's desk like a trophy. She believes he used it to copy her signature on all those insurance forms. Wow. In 1998, there was a fire at a storage facility where Malcolm and Felicity stored their stuff prior to moving to New Zealand. The evening of the fire, while watching TV with Felicity, Malcolm said he needed to go get some recordable CDs from a computer store. And since it was next door to the storage facility, he'd stop in and grab some important paperwork. Soon after he returned home, the fire was being talked about on the news. And while that does feel very suspicious, the matter was discussed in court during Malcolm's trial, and it was agreed that Malcolm did not set that fire. I'm still skeptical. Um, I'm not sure what evidence they have to back that up, but they believed he was only guilty of putting in a fraudulent claim to the insurance company, saying his items were worth £20,000 more than they actually were. Uh, in 1999, there were fires at Malcolm and Felicity's dream house and gas cans found in the trunk of the car when Malcolm faked the accident after Felicity passed out. Also in 1999, the fire at Felicity's parents' house. Malcolm had gotten up to allegedly use the bathroom and 10 minutes after he got back to bed, there was a loud cracking sound. Felicity asked him to check the noise. He said, it's nothing. Go back to sleep. Felicity pushed him to go check. He went and discovered the fire. Apparently, the fire had started on a chair and had gone up the wall and knocked a picture to the ground, which was the loud noise that Felicity had heard. After the blaze was put out, the fire chief showed up to assess the damage and determine a cause. Malcolm told the chief the fire must have started with Felicity's nail polish remover. He believed it was on the chair and it must have spontaneously combusted. The ch fire chief said, in my entire career, I've heard, never heard of something like that. To which Malcolm said that, well, it's more than possible because he used to start fires with nail polish remover when he was a child. In 2003, there was a fire in the room of a dementia patient, and at some point in the early 2000s, Malcolm started a fire at the home of one of his colleagues. And those are just the specific fires that we know about, uh, because we also know that there were numerous fires in hospitals where he worked. Uh, we just don't have specific uh, information about them. 
So the evidence from one of those fires was enough to get Operation Liffey investigators to go ahead and give Simone Banerjee the Osmond letter. And honestly, good thing they did. As you may recall, at the time of the letter, Simone was engaged to Malcolm, and the couple were not only planning for a child, but also planning their honeymoon. For their honeymoon, they were going to participate in the Atlantic Rally for Cruisers, or ARC, in Simone's yacht called the Nina. The ARC is a three to four week transatlantic race that goes from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean. After the trial, which we will get into in a moment, Simone checked her boat and found that one of the life jackets had been tampered with. Each is equipped with a small air canister that inflates the vest uh, when you pull the tab, but the canister on one of the jackets had been punctured. Malcolm was the only one who knew where that boat was docked. Was Malcolm planning to have Simone go overboard in the middle of the ocean with a faulty life jacket? It's terrifying to think about, and I guarantee that she doesn't like to think about it. Thank God. Thank God they did something. Uh, So thankfully, Simone has been saved from Malcolm's clutches, but investigators wanted enough evidence to be able to charge Malcolm with the murder of his first wife. During Operation Liffey, investigators raided Malcolm's home and found an unlicensed shotgun as well as nine laptops, one of which had been stolen from one of the hospitals where Malcolm worked. And then the breakthrough finally came. Tissue samples from Claire's liver were found in storage at the hospital. Tissue samples from all fatal road accident postmortems are kept in storage under a glass plate and then placed in a black a block of wax. Dr. James Grieve, head of forensic pathology at Aberdeen University, tested the samples and found a 92% chance that there was temazepam in Claire's liver at the time of her death. Temazepam is a sedative that is often prescribed to those with insomnia. It was not prescribed to Claire. Malcolm, however, visited his GP or doctor five times complaining about back pain. He was prescribed 191 diazepam tablets. Diazepam and temazepam are both benzodiazepines that can cause drowsiness. 191. I can't even... Anyhow, in the weeks before her death, Claire had visited the doctor twice complaining of fatigue. The doctor ran blood tests but said they came back normal. He later admitted he had not run any sort of toxicology test. Just a few years after Claire's death, it became mandatory to screen for substances after all fatal traffic accidents. Had a full tox panel been done for Claire, we would have known her death was not an accident right away. Uh, At the time, the only thing done after a traffic accident fatality was an alcohol screening. Just days after Claire's death, Malcolm's father, Sandy made some calls to the police. Did he help make a potential investigation go away? As a mother, if I think my child has possibly burned someone alive, I am not going to help them cover that up. No. And remember, there was a witness who saw the car before the fire had started, and Malcolm was outside the vehicle. 
By the time the person came back, there was a fire. That means Malcolm had time to prep the fire, which investigators believe involved paper shoved into the engine with gas poured on top. Before the explosion, the car was seen with the bonnet or hood up, which makes me think that Malcolm opened the hood to prep the fire. And the only damage to the car was the damage caused by the fire. So if they the car supposedly hit the tree so fast that it led to a fire, how was there no damage? And if it was just an accident, then why did Malcolm tell three separate people that no one was in the vehicle, when in fact he knew that his wife was in there? Because Malcolm is a cold-blooded psychopath. Yeah. That's why. Uh, And finally, on February 2nd, 2009, more than 15 years after Claire Morris's death, Malcolm Webster was officially charged with her murder. His list of charges were 11 pages long. It included murder, attempted murder, and intending to bigamously marry. He was also charged with telling multiple people that there was no one in the car as it prevented Claire from being rescued. Plus, there were charges for fraudulently cashing in on 11 insurance policies as well as receiving a widower's pension. While the crimes against Felicity Drum were committed in New Zealand, prosecutors were able to get the case in were able to try the case in Scottish court because Malcolm stole Felicity's money by transferring it to a Scottish bank account. And that was enough to give the Scottish police jurisdiction on the case. The trial officially started February 1st, 2011. It took the prosecution 50 days to get through the evidence, and it ended up being the longest-running trial for a single accused in Scotland's history. Wow! At one point, the jury was taken to the scene of Claire's murder, where the scene was recreated and the jury was able to see the position of the vehicle and that it was not natural as though it had genuinely been run off the road, as Malcolm had claimed. A company called TRL was also used to digitally recreate the accident. The results showed that the only way the car could have ended up in the position that it did would have been if Malcolm drove the car in a very controlled way at a very low speed. Oh, boy. Ah, A fun one uh, thing about TRL... They were the company hired during the investigation to do the restaging of the accident that claimed the life of Princess Diana. For more on Princess Diana, check out episode 24. Uh, Malcolm was said to be emotionless throughout the entire trial, the only time he showed a flicker of any sort of emotion was when they took away his iPhone. He had been using it to listen to music on his way to court. You know, as you do. Uh, Apparently in Scotland, the presumption of innocence means that most suspects aren't remanded before the trial. During the trial, forensic clinical psychologist Dr. Gary McPherson diagnosed Malcolm with narcissistic personality disorder. The jury, which consisted of six men and nine women, deliberated for less than four hours, and on May 19th, 2011, Malcolm was found guilty on all counts, all 11 pages. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with no possibility of parole for at least 30 years. The judge described Claire's murder as, quote, 
cold-blooded, brutal, and callous. Malcolm was 52 at the time of his sentencing, so we can only hope that the rest of his years will be spent behind bars. Throughout it all, Malcolm has maintained his innocence. He denied attempting to kill Felicity, saying, quote, There was no crash whatsoever. We came off the highway in the middle of the day and pulled up on a grass verge as there was a vibration within the car. There was no injury whatsoever to Felicity. A simple check will confirm this and that there was no damage to the car. And he's right. There was no damage to the car after the incident. But if he wasn't planning to burn the car like he did with Claire, why were there cans of gas and newspaper in the boot of the car? Why was there a lighter in the console of the car if neither of them smoked? And why did he freak out when Felicity got out of the car, yelling at her, Why the hell are you awake? Which sounds to me like he planned for her to be asleep a lot longer than she was, which brings up the fact that why was she asleep? She dozed off shortly after she drank from a thermos that he handed to her. Later on, doctors found out that Felicity had been drugged for a prolonged period of time, so if Malcolm wasn't trying to kill Felicity, then why was he drugging her? Also, there's the fact that if her father hadn't called her incessantly and woken her up, she probably would have died. So her father saved her life. Yeah. It's, I can't. I mean, well done, Dad. Yeah. Um... Malcolm was also Malcolm also accused Felicity of trying to turn his son against him. And to that I say, Malcolm, you did more damage to that child by simply walking away than anything Felicity could have done. When Felicity called him out on his lies, Malcolm up and walked out. No care or concern whatsoever as to what happened to his child. Malcolm called the case a pack of lies and demanded a public apology. As of May 2022, he's still waiting for that apology. He tried to have the conviction overturned in 2016, but was denied. At one point in prison, Malcolm paid fellow inmate Jim Brown for protection, asking him to escort Malcolm throughout the prison and to sit with him in his cell. 24 year old Brown was a power lifter who'd been caught with child pornography in his home. Oh my God. He was also convicted of performing a sex act on himself in a cubicle at a public swimming pool in uh, Wishaw, Scotland. Prior to his conviction, Brown appeared on the dating show, take me out. The contestant who chose Brown said he stalked her after their date. But I can't mention Take Me Out without giving a shout out to Patty McGinnis and saying, no likey, no No lighty. Do you remember going through that like full season in a day? I think it was. Do I remember or do I cherish it? (laughs) It was a beautiful moment of like happening upon it and life altering. That That show, what a day. That was that year's Eurovision for us. It, it was. And next year's Eurovision for us is going to be Eurovision. I can't wait. No likey, no lighty. And then maybe some take me out because I live for it. I, we need to revisit it. We really do. Uh, and yeah. Patty's on the Blanche list. Of course. 
I mean, that accent? Stop it. Uh, Something else about the case that I should mention. Claire Morris, who was described as full of life prior to her wedding, became submissive. Claire had always called her mother Betty Mum. After the wedding, Malcolm insisted that Claire call Betty Mother. For reference, Malcolm called his parents Mummy and Daddy until their deaths in 1997 and 2005, respectively. Oh my god. And one more for your psychologist hat. Yep. Malcolm also used to chastise Claire, telling her, stand up straight, take your hands out of your pockets, which is almost word for word what his own father said to him throughout his childhood. Now, Malcolm has proven time and time again he's a pathological liar, and I've mentioned some of them earlier. I just want to make sure we're all aware of just how deep some of these lies go. Yeah. First, there's the obvious ones we've already discussed, like the fact that he claimed Claire died in a car accident when, in fact, he murdered her. Allegedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he told people that Claire was pregnant when she wasn't. He also told police he broke ribs in that crash. Medical tests proved he was lying. He faked illnesses such as epilepsy, a brain tumor, multiple cancers. He told one girlfriend that because of his cancer, he had his spleen removed. Uh, He even told his family about his cancer and then confessed to them in January 2008 that he had been lying. During his time in Oban, Malcolm became a member of the local angling club. He managed to get himself a position as treasurer. He then created a secret post office box where members could send their yearly fees. And when someone would send cash, which they usually did, Malcolm just pocketed it. Uh. In the spring of 2006, the committee discovered that 4,000 pounds or 4,900 U.S. dollars had been stolen. A week later, the inquiry into the missing funds was dropped after Malcolm admitted his guilt and gave the angling club a check. When he showed up to drop the check off, he looked noticeably different with his head and eyebrow or his with his hair and eyebrows shaved off. Malcolm told them he had leukemia. Did he? tell them that, hoping that if he said he was sick, they would feel too bad to cash his check? I don't know. Uh, When he first moved to Oban, uh, he told people he had been a major in the special forces of the Saudi Arabian army. He even had a full uniform that he liked to show off. Webster's crimes uh, were depicted in the 2014 ITV miniseries The Widower, not to be mistaken with the Dateline special of the same name, which involved an American man marrying and allegedly killing his wives. For more on that, check out episode 25. Oh that's, my God. That's, that's three. It doesn't stop. It's amazing, yeah. It just worked nicely. Uh, with the widower in mind, we have clearly covered this sort of case before, and we know that men killing their wives is sadly a very common occurrence. According to the National Center for Transgender Equality, one in four women and one in seven men will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. For transgender and non-binary people, that amount jumps to 54%. And according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, in 2020, an estimated 47,000 women and girls were killed by their intimate partners 
or family members. During my research, I kept running into different cases that involved a husband killing their wife. But for this specific case, I want I was more interested in looking at husbands who killed multiple wives, thinking, oh, I'm sure there's probably one or two out there. I found six immediately. Um and then stopped because it's horrifying. Yeah. Uh, but just some examples, very briefly. Jack Reeves, a man who spent four months in jail for manslaughter in 1967, moved to Texas with his second wife, Sharon. His first marriage was to a 15-year-old girl. It was annulled. Uh. He was 18 at the time, and I don't think an 18-year-old should be around a 15-year-old, especially not married to one. That may make me a prude, but as a mother, that's where I stand. So Jack and his wife, Sharon, are married for 18 years. They have a couple of sons together before Sharon filed for divorce in February 1978. A week later, Sharon died from a shotgun wound to the chest, which somehow was originally stated as self-inflicted. The case was re-examined, and a blood spatter expert concluded that Sharon had been wearing a bra and underwear at the time of her death, but when police arrived, she was naked, which means she was very clearly murdered. Yes. In 1980, Jack married, and I apologize because I will mispronounce this, uh, Myung Hugh Chung in South Korea. In 1986, Myung drowned. Her family were suspicious as they knew that Myung uh, had a strong aversion to water, so they requested an autopsy. But Jack had her cremated immediately. Then Jack married 18-year-old Emilita Vila, uh, whom he met through a mail-order bride service. Jack was 46 at the time. Did I mention she was 18? When Emilita uh, became pregnant... Jack sent her back to the Philippines as the asshole didn't believe the baby was his. Oh, boy. After the birth of their son, Emilita sent Jack a photo, which made him realize, oh, yeah, actually, I do think the child is mine. So he brought Emilita back to the States. In 1994, Emilita told friends she was planning to divorce Jack, and she wasn't seen again. Her remains were found by a hunter near Lake Whitney in October 1995. Mm. Lake Whitney being the location where Jack's third wife drowned eight years prior. Jack was finally arrested in January 1996. He was convicted of Sharon's murder. He was sentenced to 35 years. Then in August 1996, he was convicted of Emilita's murder and sentenced to an additional 99 years. Jack has appealed twice but was rejected. He will be eligible for parole in 2026. My hope is he is denied so he can die in prison. Yeah. Yeah. I just so boldly said, I'd like him to die. There we go. <laughs> well, listen. Is she good. is who she is. Yep. In 1988, Earl Taylor was convicted of murdering his second wife, Mindy, after her body was recovered from a car in a pond in 1987. He served 25 years before he was released in January 2014. He was arrested again in July, just six months later, on suspicion of killing his first wife, Kathy, back in 1975. Earl claimed he came home and found Kathy dead in a bathtub after the clock radio 
had fallen into her tub during her bath. During a new investigation decades after the crime, it was found the clock radio's power cord had been altered to extend its length so it could reach the tub. Earl murdered both of his wives after taking out large life insurance policies on them. (sighs) Then we have Ian Stewart. He murdered his wife, Diane, in Cambridgeshire in 2010. He told people Diane died from an epileptic, epileptic seizure. In 2017, Ian was convicted of drugging and suffocating his fiancée, Helen Bailey, before dumping her body in a cesspit at their Hertfordshire home. And in case you needed proof that this man was a true monster, he also killed Helen's dog, a dash hound named Boris. Ian was sentenced to 34 years in jail, and police were prompted to reinvestigate the death of Diane Stewart. Once again, a man who killed off the women he supposedly loved uh, just to get insurance money. After receiving £96,000, or $117,000, Ian bought a brand new sports car, insisting to everyone that it was to honor Diane's memory. The man is human garbage. In February 2022, Ian was found guilty of Diane's murder. And sadly, I could continue as there are so many stories like this out there, but I don't want to because it's horrifying and it makes me angry. Uh, so back to the slime ball of the hour. On the surface, Malcolm Webster was an upstanding citizen and well-respected nurse. One former girlfriend desca- described him as, quote, in the early days when I first met him, he kind of looked like Sean Connery a little bit. He was very romantic, very charming, well-traveled, humorous, a life and soul of the party kind of guy. He was a charmer. But to me, one of the most telling things about Malcolm, uh, a man who was known for trying to con women out of their money, is his favorite saying. Why? I don't know. It's just what it is. Quote, Why work hard yourself when someone else could be doing it for you? And to that I say, what a genuine piece of shit. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm enraged. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I'm right there with you. Right there with you. Listen, I've got so many thoughts, but um, let's take one more quick break, hit the can, grab one more drink, and then we're going to come back with our final thoughts on true piece of shit Malcolm Webster (laughs) on this episode of True Crab and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Malcolm Webster, someone who has truly blown my mind. Um, And I feel like my mind gets blown on this show regularly, but not necessarily (laughs) like this. Yeah. Um, I was going to try and start at the end and work my way back because you so beautifully uh, reverse engineered this episode. But then I was like, I'm already getting confused with my own thoughts. I'm just going to keep <laughs> this linear. I'm going to follow, sure, your, sure. follow your lead. Um, there's so many things. What I love is from the get. I think you were like three sentences into this, basically, when you're talking about him meeting Claire Morris they meet the next day he starts showering her with gifts. Mm-hmm. Dear listeners, and I want to preface this by saying, I I am speaking as somebody who has been down this road. And I know it feels so backwards, but again, and I'm not saying that every person who does this is, is going to turn into a killer, but like, I know it seems backwards, but if that's what's happening, if someone is immediately love bombing you to that extent, red flag, red alarm, abort, abort, abort. If someone is is showering you with gifts on day two, oh yeah, I promise you, get out. And I know there's exceptions to every rule. I don't need to hear them. My point is, look how it turned out for Claire. I'm not being glib. I'm being serious. I think mm-hmm. that we've been programmed by movies and, and and television and books and whatever that that's romantic. And at the end of the day, while it feels or perceives to be romantic, if someone's doing that the second day they've ever known you, they're like showering you with gifts. I know it feels so good. It's so delicious. But... My God, that's the biggest red flag in the middle. And I'm this isn't me victim shaming Claire at all. I'm just trying to say again as like a as a, you know, as a moment of of uh, advocacy, the things that we've been programmed to believe are beautiful are not always. Uh, and this is yeah. such a tragic tale in that exact way because that's just where, again, this starts to unravel. My God. There's so many things. And I know that you're gonna love again. As Lauren Ash puts on the psychologist hat, what are the things that stand out to her? Because often it's like, that's the thing that that bumped you? One of the things that bumped me, and you're going to love this, is that when they got married, when he got married to Claire, they had a traditional Scottish ceremony, but they were both British. That is atypical. Huh. And sure. I'm going to I'm going to speak to why that bothers me from from my own completely unqualified psychologist hat perspective, of but course. why He is somebody who has built his entire lifetime on perpetual lies and pretending to be something he's not. So I don't know whose idea that was. If I had to be a betting woman, I'm going to go on record as saying, I bet you it was his idea. We're in Scotland. Let's do this. Sure. It's just abnormal. Again, there's always exceptions. I'm not judging anybody, but I'm just saying when we're we're looking at one person who has... We know his, you know, his full story. These are the things that stand out. And again, two people who have no connection to that heritage 
choosing that. I just, it feels to me like that was probably predicated by him. I'm speculating. But because it fits his profile, which is he's trying to be something that he's not. He's trying to be this other person. He's trying desperately to get attention and be anybody that he is. And that, to me, again, a red flag. But also, at the time, I don't think that she would have necessarily, it would have come off to her that way, but in retrospect. Um, and then I said to you, I said to you partway through, I was like, I've already written it down. The fact that this man was in an, quote, accident, which we now know absolutely wasn't an accident. Mm-hmm. But either way, the fact that his blood pressure and his pulse were normal, I know that time had passed when he got into the hospital. But that is the most chilling detail of all of this. Because for someone who is in, for someone who who is legitimately in an accident, alone. Yeah. You trying to bring your pulse or heart rate down, good luck. As somebody who's personally been in some serious accidents, this is not something that comes down in 20 minutes. This is like a severe response. I remember hours after I was in a severe car accident, I thought I was fine. I went home. I had to call 911. The paramedics get there. They thought I was on drugs because my heart rate was so high and my eyes were so dilated. I I mean, I, I was like, I, I haven't even smoked pot in five years or something. Like I was like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was just like, no, nothing. But again, like your body in those situations when you've legitimately been in, it, gone through an accident and been in trauma, yeah. um, it's abnormal to walk away. So again, that's the first red flag to me. But we now know, of course, he wasn't in an accident at all. He had done this whole thing. Yeah. But the other thing I would add, and I have no data to back this up, and I wish I did, but the idea that he pulled off creating this fake accident scene, which was actually, as we know, him essentially drugging her and blowing up the car. Not yeah. to be glib, but we know that that's what it was. Yeah. I'm not trying to be glib when I say this, but I do believe... Don't quote me. Again, I'm just speculating, but, and I would love to pull up some numbers when I have more time. I think it's also chilling that that killing didn't do that to him. Because I think if you probably dig into it, for a fair amount of serial killers, I think they absolutely have a physiological reaction. Oh, I guarantee it. So again, right? So again, the fact that this man premeditated and did this and then within hours was completely normal, fine, but also ended up spending a week in the hospital. At that his says, request, seemingly. Exactly. And that's the thing that says two chilling things to me. One, this killing did not affect him at all. Either way, it did nothing. Not only did it not uh-huh. make him feel guilt or remorse or whatever, it also didn't make him feel adrenaline, a rush, any of the above. But then he was also immediately able to manipulate that hospital staff, doctors, nurses, whoever, into believing he needed to be there for a week. 
And this is at a time, like, they're not doling out a week in the hospital, I feel like, at that point, unless they really feel like you're in need. I mean, again, this man's a great actor. The fact that he went to that hospital in the neck brace and the wheelchair, her brother held his hand at the funeral. I mean, truly so disgusting on his part. But he, it's interesting to me that it seems like he really got off on all of that. But there was no biological response. You would think that there would be an elevated heart rate, that the blood pressure would be, his blood would be pumping, that there'd be some kind of, kind of um, indication of him reacting physically to what he was doing. And the fact that there wasn't, I mean, that chills me to my core. I feel like we haven't seen that. Now, granted, have we gone through every serial killer we've talked about and have they measured those people's vitals at specific moments that we know about? Sure. No. But again, I am speculating that I do feel like if this is seemingly his first kill and there wasn't kind of a prolonged... Because again, I will speak for myself. If I'm in a prolonged anxiety state, which I have been in many times, it doesn't go away in 20 minutes. Like if you're in a prolonged, if you experience a really big adrenaline moment, it can last hours. Yes. I'm I'm speaking for myself. So anyway, all of that to say, speculation, was it his first kill? Are there things we don't know about that predate Claire? Because to it's me, possible. if he's that comfortable at that point that it's not really affecting him to a, you know, to a couple hours after the incident, there's no physiological response. To me, I don't know. Anyway, speculating. I'm also shocked that with his obsession with fire, that building the fire and watching it burn and watching it get to that point wouldn't do something to him. For it to continue into adulthood, and I know that for him there is, because there is an endless, and pyromania is a very, and I don't know enough about it, and I should read more, but there, there, it's a really nuanced one. I don't know if you've done any reading about this, because there is, there is like arson versus pyromania, right? So there's the people sure. that, do, that do the crimes for a tangible outcome, for money, for, you know, insurance money, et cetera. And then there's the people that set fire and why. And often that, of course, starts in childhood as, as we get into in this case. Um, but to me, yeah, you know, he was getting obviously some sort of financial gain from this. But I would love to pull up the correlations between because he started in childhood. To me, it's like if you started setting fires in childhood and it was a real thing for you, yeah. I don't know that. It wouldn't elicit a biological response in you because I don't know that people who are really prone to setting fires from childhood are the same ones that are doing it for gain. And I know he was also doing it for gain, so maybe he's one of the crossover types. Again, I'm speaking of this. I I would love to do some research because I don't know that much about it. But I do know there is kind of like two different schools of thought about the the reasons why with fire. But with him, it feels like there was a real connection to fire. And is it about attention? Is it about whatever? Um, Is it about power? All of those things. All of this to say, it still feels like the man would be eliciting a, a, a biological response. If nothing else, the high of getting away with it. That's gonna yeah. make your heart race. That's gonna make your blood pump. That it's like, but the fact that he's cool as a cucumber within hours of 
killing his wife in a very premeditated way. Chilling, fucking chilling, honest to God. Also, again, her finding out she's pregnant, him being so angry. This to me, too, it's like it, the the all of this together in retrospect, it's just like what a chilling painting. Um, and the one thing I want to say that comes up again and again in this episode, and I will not, I promise, I will not get on a, bo- a soapbox for too long here, but Claire, and I, I think, again, this comes up again. Maybe it was with Felicity. I might get there in a second. But going to doctors saying, I'm exhausted. I cannot stop sleeping. I'm sleeping for days yeah. at a time. I don't feel right. Something's wrong. And being brushed off, it burns my ass like you have no idea. There is nothing truly that infuriates me more than than people going to a medical professional saying, this is what's happening to me. Something is wrong with me. And that medical professional brushing them off, giving them a bullshit excuse, whatever. My heart literally like rips in a way you don't know. Because if something had been done at that time, and I get that maybe nothing could have, but if something could have been done at that time where she was just really believed and it was like, are you being poisoned? And I know that that doesn't come up, but maybe it should. You know what I mean? Like, maybe there should be a protocol that it's like, let's do a fucking urine test. Let's just see. Yeah. I'm I'm shocked there's not more or that they wouldn't have been like, let's just do a full everything. Let's check everything we possibly can out of your blood, whatever we need to do. Because if it, if it's like, I'm sleeping all the time, if it turns out that she's taking pills that she hasn't told you about, then you can be like, here's your cause. But then if you're mentioning the pills to her and that's news to her, that would have been great information to have. A hundred percent. It could have saved her life. Honestly. I just, I really get upset hearing stories of people going and seeking medical help and doctors basically telling them, you're wrong, there's nothing wrong with you. To me, it's like, if a 32-year-old woman is saying, I cannot stop sleeping, I'm sleeping for 30 hours at a time, something is wrong with me, please help, and the person's going, I don't know, it's your problem, I just can't. Again, I've experienced that in my real life, not those specifics, but again, being told by doctors that it's like, I don't know, who knows? Your metabolism just slowed down. It's like, well, maybe not. Um, Spoiler alert, we all know our bodies better than anybody. And if we're saying something's up and we know something's up, it's always, we're always right. Um, Yeah. I mean, again, I just was like, the specific of him using burning paper is fascinating. He used burning paper in the dementia patient's room. Yeah. He used burning paper in the mail slot at Felicity's parents' house. And he used burning paper in the uh, under the hood of Claire's car, which yeah. is very interesting to me because that does connect to childhood. And what's interesting to that about me is while the, quote, crimes may have escalated, his method never escalated. And I can speak to this as somebody who feels like she's a self-appointed serial killer expert of some kind. I like that, that is, a lot. But that is odd. It is odd that the methodology – now, granted, I know you're, what you're saying. Well, Lauren, how do you start a fire that's very similar? But it just feels interesting to me that he always went to his roots when starting these fires, which was burning paper. 
And then yeah. maybe it became at a greater scale, a bigger whatever, more fuel, et cetera. But I think that's important to note when we're when we're looking at a psychological profile of this person that it was always going back to the way he probably did it the first time, which is not, again, for a lot of serial killers, they're not necessarily going back to the way they did it the first time in terms of a, a murder. Kills continue to evolve and escalate often. Um. I also want you to know, when I write my notes, I always star the things that I want to make sure I bring up. Everything is starred. So I'm just like, this is crazy. I'm trying to go through this in a timely manner and I'm failing. You're um, doing great. The the feeling it must have been for Felicity when he's like, I'm out of control. Something's wrong with the car. And then she feels the wheel and it's fine. That is like a living horror movie. I can't even imagine that poor woman. And then to follow that up with, your savings have been drained. He has <sighs> basically taken almost, you know, 391,000 New Zealand dollars. That is, and the fact that he knew that it's like, at that point he's like, oh, I know your, her dad knows. Shit, I didn't kill her in time, basically. Yeah. And what's interesting to me about that, and now again, I'm just going from the psychologist perspective. Of course. He had drugged her. She was passed out in the car. He had their child. He was walking the child. She woke up and he was like, you're supposed to be asleep. And then said, well, your dad's going to tell you some stuff about money. Don't believe it or whatever. And he took yeah. off. What's interesting to me about that was he knew he was going to get caught. He knew that it, he was made. And he knew yeah. that he wasn't going to get any of the life insurance money from her that he may or may not have had. Right? Right. But he wouldn't kill her. His killings were passive. The woman had to be drugged and asleep, and then he had to set them on fire. Yeah. He could not physically get into an altercation, get into some sort of violent um, attack. Right. Which is interesting to me, because even in a time where with another killer we may have seen, it was like, I'm about to get caught, another killer may have gone, well, guess what? Now I'm going to attack her strangle her, stab her, whatever, God forbid. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's interesting to me that he just let it go. That when it was like, I know I'm going to get caught, she's going to learn the truth. Oh, well, he didn't escalate. And that's interesting. That's what another thing that makes this guy unique to me. Also, the, the, the specific that he was using insulin in these injections. That he was overdosing people by insulin, which was basically giving people low blood sugar. Right? Because insulin for diabetics who typically have high blood sugar, insulin will regulate your blood sugar. If you're giving it to a non-diabetic, it's going to make your blood sugar plummet and you're going to have dizziness, tiredness, all these things. You pass out. It's just so specific. It feels again. And this speaks to – I'm looking at all of this as a a psychologist hat – trying to have almost – I don't mean this like it's going to sound, but almost like he has a sympathy for these people. Like he doesn't want to do something like, you know what I mean? Like it's like he's doing this in a way that he views as being humane. Sure. I don't. I was still still surprised that he tried to get the child out of the way before starting a fire. Well, what does that say, right? That this is – we're dealing with somebody – He's really fascinating. Again, I love that you were like, it's going to titillate uh, Lauren's psychologist hat. And it does. 
Because, yeah, he didn't want this child. But then when he did have this child, he was like, I will fight tooth and nail for full custody. And he got his father on board and all of the above. Yeah. Again, he's somebody who his killings never escalated in terms of M.O. He's somebody who, when faced with you're going to get caught, he was like, oh, well, he didn't feel like I've got to take her out no matter what. Right. Right? Like, which I, I'm speaking glibly, but meaning we see it a lot in the true crime space, very tragically. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's interesting, yeah, that again, it was, he doesn't fit the mold by any stretch. I also find it terrifying that when we kind of like went through his history, it was like, oh, he did all these things. He got into trouble. He was having, he was doing petty crimes. And then he went to school and became a nurse. It was like, oh my God, like, Again, like when I just think about the people that and he was working in nursing homes and it's like when we think about who we trust our loved ones with um, and there's a, ma- a million amazing nurses. I'm not in any, but but it's just like the idea that even one in a million or one of our loved ones could come across one of uh, this psycho. It's just like it's chilling to yes. think about, right? Um, so many things. Him faking cancer is wild, truly <sighs> wild but again this speaks to me this speaks to like he wants the attention it feels to me more than anything and we we see this with pyromania and children that it's not about destruction for a lot of them it is about attention so to Mm -hmm. me it feels like again yes he was killing people don't get me wrong but it doesn't feel like he had bloodlust it didn't feel like he wanted to snuff out lives right. it feel like he wanted to do things to get attention and get money which is different than other killers we see who want to kill want oh. to feel that power this for 100%. It, it feels like he wanted sympathy he wanted attention etc yes um, and i should have said i think i forgot to put it in my notes but i did read that uh when he was a child quite young uh, he would uh, pretend to faint anytime someone told him to do something he didn't want to do. So it was just right from the start. It was always just fake an illness. You're suddenly ill, and then you'll get the attention, and then you don't have to do what you want. What you don't want to. There it is. Yep. 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 One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Um. Yeah, again, like, he said he'd never forget her screams, but we know that she was drugged and, and silent at the time of her death in terms of Claire's Correct. death. That's someone looking for attention, that wanting sympathy. Like, this, yeah. this is not someone who went through, you know what I'm saying? Like, fascinating. Uh, I'm not even getting into all the shit about the Range Rover, the ring with one of his wife's money. I mean, all of it is abysmal and horrific. And that's why, again, he's fascinating because it feels, again, like there isn't a conscious. There is this, like, psychopathy. But again, what we see in other psychopaths is still a disregard for human life, is still a, a almost a, a, a relishing in taking human life because it feels like a god moment, right? And he sure. it doesn't feel like he had that in the same way. It feels like for him it was literally just about wanting the attention and or money, which is, again, fascinating. Look – when I say I'm going to research this, I am not kidding. His father saying no one can be in the house when we when I take a shit three times a day, that is one of the wildest things I have ever heard. But what happened to that dad? There is a trauma there. There is something there. That is 
huge, that is a huge piece to all of this. And then when we find out that the dad was like, don't speak unless spoken to children at the at the, the, the dinner table and that sure. he was kind of ruling with an iron fist, the key to all of this is that father. And there's something, there's a trauma that happened to that dad that, again, I feel like would, would open the, would blow the roof off this whole thing. Again, it makes sense his parents being described as cold and aloof, uh, that Malcolm is desperately trying to get attention from anybody. The things you've added about what he would do for attention. Again, this all just makes sense. Um, this time in Abu Dhabi and him potentially killing these children is wild to me. Wild. But again, it's interesting that it was like he doesn't have a problem with that. But if it was his own child, no way. But also he was fine abandoning his own child. This guy is, again, I just don't feel like we've ever seen anyone like this. He really yep. has his own profile that doesn't fit into anything. Um, nine laptops? I just wrote that down. I was like, who has nine laptops? Like, that's wild to me. Anyway, a um, couple more things. I'm wrapping it up, I promise. 191 diazepam. I just want to give a context for that. Diazepam, they will give you for anxiety. Back in the day when I had a very hard time flying yeah. very, like true anxiety before I started flying with Fox, which deeply helped me flying with a animal. I could, I'll, I could do a whole podcast about how I believe in that. But anyway, um, I could go, I would go to a doctor and say like, and this is being very genuine. Like I had so much anxiety flying. I'm like, is there, can you give me something? What I would be given is two tablets, two diazepam. And it's essentially like, Ativan or Xanax or whatever, one for a flight where I was going and one coming back. Like, and this was 10 years ago. Yeah. It's so hard to get those pills prescribed to you because they don't want them misused. They don't want, et cetera. Like the idea that this person just had 191 of them, like that's wild to me. From five visits. That's wild. Again, like when I, and I'm not saying that Perhaps he he wasn't describing an anxiety disorder that needed it daily or whatever. I just know that like the hoops I had to jump through when I had a when I have a diagnosed anxiety disorder and yeah. I was had booked travel and had a legitimate travel anxiety and all of the above. Like what I the documentation I would have to show and prove to get two tablets once a year, twice a year, it's just wild to me that he could even have access to that level of that medication is my point. Yeah. Um, just wild. The other thing I would say too, uh, oh, you brought up how they recreated the scene with Claire and then that made me think of the Nicole Brown Simpson episode of our show where they recreated that scene and it did not help that court case. Correct. Um, uh, listen to that episode if you haven't already. Um <laughs> Malcolm making his wife Claire call her mom mother when he used mommy and daddy until their deaths. There's so much in there. There's so much in there. <laughs> Again, I think him wanting mommy and daddy's approval, wanting their attention, wanting their love, all of the above, and the ways in which he sought those things. Again, I feel like I have like a long list of things that I'm going to be researching, mostly just for my own information. Sure. Um, but truly, and I can say this without hyperbole because we cover a lot on this show, I have yeah. never been more confounded or fascinated 
by any one person than I am by this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Truly. So I thank you, not only for your research, but for bringing him into uh, my consciousness, because this was wild. It it was a lot. It was I, I had never heard of him. Uh, was looking into a case a suggestion that we had been given and then ended up going to this one from that and just I, uh, once I got to the part about the p- potentially killing those three children that was the moment I went yep okay I guess we're doing this we're doing it as an episode we're just gonna do it and see what happens and it's just I I don't even have words like it's the the connection of him starting the lie in his adulthood of I have cancer the day of his father's funeral which makes me wonder was his father sick for a while and he was getting sympathy because oh no your father's sick and then he got sympathy because oh no your father died and then it's like, well, he's he's dead now. I'm not going to get sympathy anymore. So then he turned around and got something else. It felt to me, I wish I, thank you for bringing that up. What it felt to me like is he didn't want sympathy for his father dying because that he had to share with his father. Oh, he wanted his own. He wanted his own. Mm. The day his father dies, he gets cancer, quote unquote, because then that's his sympathy and his his alone. Wow. Yeah, great call. Again, I don't do it professionally, just a hobby. You should. Um, but oh, you but very quickly, very quickly, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. You made me re- remember the one other thing I wanted to say because I was talking about how he didn't escalate. It didn't feel like his crimes escalate, but you just reminded me potentially killing those children. And I know that he didn't have necessarily like a relationship with them, obviously, but like it feels, and maybe, I'm, and look, again, not a professional, but it feels like killing three random children for what? No reason? Like to try to see? Mm-hmm. And then going to the other ways he killed people, which was for function in the sense that he was getting money, he was getting attention, all of these things. It almost feels like a de-escalation to me. Now, I know that you could argue that it's like, it's harder to kill somebody that you know, but I don't know. Killing a child versus an adult, I'm just going to yeah. go out on a limb and say, and again, you can tell me I'm wrong all you want, but I'm just going to say for me and uh, and everything we've done on this show. Yeah. We also know that we have covered serial killers who were like, Joanna Dennehy, I will reference that. She was like, I will not kill a child. And she was somebody who killed for fun. Literally was like, right. I want to kill. I want to lick the blood off of my knife. Right. That was her. Ju- that was her mo. And she was like, but not a child, not a woman. <laughs> so again, it's interesting to me when we're talking about that. Who's a stone cold to the nth degree psychopath, full killer, bloodlust, etc. Yeah, wouldn't kill a child, but this guy. He starts, and again, I know he wasn't convicted, so we're supposed to say allegedly, because he wasn't convicted for those crimes because they weren't properly investigated. He wasn't convicted for the three children, yes. Okay, but what it appears like is, again, going by what we have, speculating, if he did kill those three kids, 
That's a huge, like, again, like, killing a child is, is, killing anything, don't get me wrong, but killing a child just feels, again, it feels almost like a de-escalation to me to then kill a, a partner for insurance money. It's, killing a, yeah. killing anybody is horrific, killing a partner for insurance money is horrific. Yeah. But starting with killing a child but again, he was the one that, quote, found their bodies. He was still getting something out of it. He was getting attention. He was the one that was like, oh, my gosh, what have I come upon? He's fascinating. He he terrifies me. I'm going to make the boldest statement ever. He terrifies me most than, than most of the serial killers that I've covered. Because the serial killers wow. that I've covered, they have an MO. It's clear. They they all abide by a certain set of, of their own rules. Sure. This guy... I don't get him. It doesn't make sense to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's chilling. Yeah. And oh, god damn if it isn't compelling. <laughs> yeah. Because then you're so, like, if he did kill those children, how many patients, how many patients at the nursing home, how many patients at any hospital he's worked at died and should have been looked into, but it was like, they were old. It's natural causes. Like, you know? Well, and, and we also know that he often went to insulin. And if we're dealing with people in nursing homes, it's very easy. I mean, diabetes is extremely prevalent, um, especially for, for people who are older. There's sure. – It would be very easy even to slightly alter an older person's insulin dosage and kill them. Very easy. And it would appear as, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Christy Oxborough, tr- first of all, in- impeccable research, impeccable episode, the way you produced it, the way you laid it out, et cetera, <laughs> but also impeccable choice. I got to tell you, you really riveted me. This was incredible. This, again, I read the children part and went, oh, I yeah, shit, I have to now. I'm in it now. Oh, I get it. Yeah. I truly get it. Uh, you blew my mind, as always. As always. You're too much. Never. Uh, and thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this wild ride. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, at True Crime and Cocktails. On Twitter, at Not Detectives. And if you'd like a little bit more, uh, we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash Cocktails. There are bonus episodes, monthly live Q&As, and you can take part in a live, not a live, in a monthly poll to determine one of the episodes we cover each month on this feed of the show. So if you'd like to learn more about that, go to patreon.com slash Cocktails, And the only place to buy official, real, Laura Nash made True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com so check that out as well if you're interested Christy do you want to tell the people about next week's episode on the next true crime and cocktails Rico Harris and Bison Daly I don't know anything about uh, this next episode and I am jazzed Uh, do you want to say goodnight to the people goodnight Channing Tatum Yeah. Good night, Jamie Tatum. You're very funny. So funny.
Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.